0: Click, pay, and download instantly.
1: Welcome
2: to the podcast.
3: We are live here on the flat five podcast with evan alexander moore my man thank you for coming back on the show how
2: have you thank you for having me i appreciate it so um
3: today is saturday august 21st 2021 i released a podcast uh this past wednesday um highlighting your new song oh father and in the middle of recording that i was like man i gotta have evan back on the show to talk about this song and in all seriousness i genuinely love that song like the little midi vocals that are happening it they're like stuck in my head like all day long and that's all i'm thinking about you really did a fantastic job on that tracks
2: thank you i appreciate it
3: where did the um like maybe not the the first lyric but when did like the first idea sort of come for this for this tune
2: for the first idea for this tune really came from honestly the music side i really loved uh, i was just kind of noodling around on the, on the guitar and i loved the way uh, a the the DJ, the, the major 7th of a on on the 4 chord um, I, just, I just fucking love it when when you got like a groove going and then you hit like uh, a four chord with the major seventh. And and so I'd been playing around with this little riff. Uh, it's the same riff that you hear going throughout the song. The... Da, 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 da. And, and, uh, I'd had that like in my head since maybe like Early 2019, I'd had that riff, um, and I'd just been playing around with it, and it finally just came to fruition uh, in this version of the song. So it really started off with that, that A to the D major seventh and that riff.
1: It's funny, because I think
2: the
3: uh, episode that we did together, we talked about how musicians will have a riff or some sort of idea, and then it's kind of in the vault. And you kind of don't touch it, you know. It's
2: like you know, it's it,
3: there's just not enough juices flowing for that one idea, and then suddenly you start working on it again a you know, brand new song. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, so one of the things that I had uh, a question on when I was listening to it is how, um, like, how you kind of came to that composition, like structurally speaking, with the song because it flows like really well. Like one of the things that is that it the song simultaneously feels like you're moving forward, you know, like you're moving through time, you know, as a song should, but it also feels like I'm sitting on like an old wooden rocking chair sort of looking at like a farm and I'm like leaning back and forth and it feels like those two things at the same time. So I'm not sure if you worked with like a team of producers or if you did it all by yourself, but how did you come to that, um, composition and that structure?
2: Mm-hmm. I I love that description of the feeling of moving forward, but also being kind of like centered in one place. Yeah. Um, uh, no, no team of producers. This was this all, uh, me. And then I collaborated with, uh, two artists, um, uh, Mia Bathkey and uh, Alana Sandler. um, And we worked on the song together and uh, they provided me uh, a a bevy of vocals and uh, and I believe Alana did some mandolin on it. Um, And uh, so those were the only kind of like outside influences on the song. As far as the structure, I mean, I think it's interesting there that you uh, describe something very, very detailed and very kind of vivid, but it really only uses like essentially three chords with like different voicings in a, in them. There's a, there's, you know, the, the, the A on the one, the, the D major seventh, and then there's an E7. Uh, and then I think I throw in a D7 there just to, get a little bit of spice in there. Um, but otherwise those are, those are kind of it. Um, so I mean, I don't, I don't know how to kind of describe it other than I, again, I really like that riff. I liked kind of the rocking, uh, the, the rocking back and forth of that riff. And then when it slowly builds up into that chorus where you finally hit, hit the, the E7, I think what what it what it does for me personally is that even though I'm hitting the five, it almost feels like I'm building up to like hitting the home chord in a weird way. Um, I don't know if that makes makes any sense. Well, uh,
3: it's like it like you know for for listeners that aren't like the music theory nerds, like when you're you're going up to your fifth um, of the scale, it's especially if it's a seventh chord it's going to have a really strong resolution like on the one you know whether you go like let's say you're playing um like g7 or in your case you're playing e7 right Mm -hmm. you can go down to the a chord that's like below like down a fifth and it's going to feel really strong um I mean, you can go from the five seven and can then play an A chord up the octave, and it'll still feel, um, you know, like tonally resolving, but it feels a little bit brighter, a little bit more graceful. Mm-hmm. But that's what that's what like your five seven chord um, is supposed to do. Like that's why jazz musicians use like the two five one um, chord, yeah. right? Like it just has that nice jump to it. But I I love that the songs that are the least complicated music theory wise are the ones that resonate the best because it's about how the artist is actually using it. You know, Cause I kind of see chords like as a different color or maybe even like, right. right? And it, it's, it's always so refreshing to see artists use like a minimal amount, you know, in terms of like harmony or in terms of like I guess you could just say chords in general, but the way that an artist plays them, the way that an artist delivers them, you know, just feels so authentic. Because I mean, how many how many songs are there in the world that have like those three chords? Like a major, you know, mm-hmm. major seven, e seven. Yeah, you could there's so many blues songs that you can make from that. You could start on E. You could start on D and play those chords and get some sort of like 80s vibe going, like Tears for Fears. But yeah, mm-hmm. like, you know, there's probably thousands by now of, of songs that use those three chords. Right. But it's always about how the artist like paints the picture. It's not just about the colors at that point, you know, and it's yeah. really how you how you achieve that because that was like really the first thing that that clicked when I listened to it is that Simultaneous, like feeling like it feels centered, but the way the song is composed, it's moving you forward. Because I don't know, like, yeah. are you a fan of the band? Uh, I think I asked you this before, but you're a fan of uh, U2?
2: Yeah, yeah, especially you know, the early stuff.
3: You know, the song Numb?
2: Uh, I don't, I don't think know I know that one, one actually. Edge is
3: like really monotone and he's like, do, 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 and he's just saying the same thing and that song kind of feels like you're like running in 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 a square like you're just kind of in one spot but you're like moving you're not actually going anywhere right and mm. it's not a bad song it's also not a long song it's maybe got like two sections out of the whole thing and the thing with that tune is that they're trying to achieve that feeling of like being stationary right there are artists that will go mm-hmm. And make a song that they're it's almost as if they're trying too hard to make the song move forward and then it feels like it doesn't have a clear direction you know right your song is very much just like there's there's a very specific like sort of not journey is the word but like road that we're on and you mm-hmm. know and like evan is just going to take us there and then we're going to get there with like no issues, you know, and it, and it is really nice to listen to. And then I started noticing like the theatrics of it, like all the little added layers. And you talked about the mandolin, like the mandolin is is such a nice, like mm-hmm. to the whole thing. So when you guys were recording it, like, how did you go through each instrument? Cause it does feel very like layered.
2: Mm-hmm. How did I go through each instrument? I mean, I always start with as kind of like a folk artist, I start with the guitars and I want to make sure that the guitars sound good. And I don't, and I like to really beef up the guitar sound. So, I mean, with this song, I have like, I want to say like six, maybe eight layers of layers of acoustic guitars. I have your main kind of riff and, uh, and actually, you know what? I started off with just playing the main riff and then I went into, went into uh, my DAW and I like cut it up and just repeated it almost like a sample. Um, and so I started off with that. And as I built upon that and I started adding different little um, uh, guitar layers, I, I did some kind of like finger-picked parts. I uh, would move a capo up to like higher and higher frets and get different voicings. Mm-hmm. And I would start layering that on top of it. And then what I ended up doing is I built kind of this structure. I went back to the scaffolding, which was the repeated piece. I just cut that out entirely. And I just did a live take of me playing it live. Um, So that way I get the structure of uh, that that very steady, like right down to the beat structure. And then I can totally delete that because I've already built upon it. And then I can get a more live take that doesn't feel like a like a just a, a repetitious uh, piece. So that's kind of where I started it, and then from there, just based on the lyrics, based on what I'm saying, I started adding layers from there. The the mandolin, the kind of very dreamy, almost psychedelic chorus, um, all these different effects. Uh, the vocals, especially, are a big piece to it. Um, that's kind of the how how I went through it um, as far as as far as the interpretation Blue goes. Blue bowl on a cracked shelf. She pours it all into her mouth. Oh no! Chastised, her body melts. The bruised words, all the things she felt, stand strong.
3: because yeah, i i like that first listen i i heard that you know being in two places at once and then just put that you know put that shit on loop and i'm like listening over and over again to really start to ingest all of the layers and the one thing i always do especially with songs that have like a band feeling to them is imagine like i'm in the live room or the control room rather watching the musicians in the live room you know doing their thing and it I I, like with that with that podcast I was talking about with all the other songs I don't know what it was with this one but it this one and the turnstile music like it really felt like each instrument had like character to them you know it wasn't like Here's a couple of guitar chords and it just feels like somebody playing guitar for the sake of playing guitar, you know, like every layer in Oh Father has like character to it. It almost sounds as if like the the bassist or the bass guitar is the most like stripped down and and like essential part to just move the song or to keep the song like where it should be like, like sonically speaking. Because the drums, you know, have an occasional fill, like every four measures, you know, there's like, it's not like a basic like backbeat, where it's just the right. like same beat every time. And the drums are the things that are keeping you grounded. It's more so that the drums are adding, like this new element of almost like melody, you know, like these new phrases that are just, an, it's, a, it's a whole added layer to kind of get behind it. And the bass is the part that feels the most grounded. Like a jazz bassist, you know, like they're just playing right. all the downbeats, and everybody else is kind of, you know, doing their thing and adding little bit of splashes of, of color here and there. Um, now, did you have like like did somebody or bass play bass on that, or did you have a, a bassist come in?
2: I did not have a bassist come in. That was all uh, MIDI. That was all MIDI oh. MIDI bass. Really? Yeah, that was mini, that was mini bass. I kind of like uh, I I spent. I think I went through like one or two different versions of the bass line, uh, and then I think honestly, I started thinking about uh, uh, two uh, bassist friends of mine, and I would think of like what they would play because I knew I didn't want just like something that followed the just followed the chords and supported it. I wanted it to have like a little bit of movement underneath. Like, a, like. I almost treat the, the bass as, depending on what you're doing, yeah. you can either have it supporting something that's more pretty up here, or if you want the the prettiness to be a little bit more steady, mm-hmm. uh, like I think the song is, which is pretty steady, pretty pretty moot, pretty uh, uh, uh almost kind of like staying in one place. I'll have the bass do a lot of moving. And so that's kind of how I approached the bass with uh, this. Just, just enough like movement underneath mm-hmm. to where this very kind of steady uh, um, guitar piece is both supported, but also makes it drive a little bit more because it, it is a very hypnotic. Uh, guitar loop going on above above the fray um, so I think having this line that kind of is shifting underneath really kind of animates the song and again provides that feeling that you're talking about of staying in one place and yet you feel like you're being pushed forward yeah. Um which I mean is kind of a big part of the song and it's Uh, lyrical themes uh, as well so um yeah that's that's kind of the story on the baseline
3: yeah so the base see the base for a second i was thinking oh i just messed with my uh my input my little gain knob (laughs) um i was thinking that like the drums i as i was listening to them and starting to be a little bit more like analytic just like I I think it's almost the curse in the the musician is that like the minute you start hearing something you like, you have to completely break it down and like be aware of every possible layer that exists. And so listening to um, Oh Father for maybe like the third or fourth run. I started listening to the drums. I'm like, these drums sound a little bit like MIDI. And I was like, they kind of feel like that. Did you use MIDI for the drums as well?
2: MIDI, MIDI for the drums too. <clears throat> that, is, is that
3: logic like the logic kits
2: no i so uh i did this recording uh, uh on garage band
3: oh <laughs> ah, okay so yeah so it's, the- oh, it's not
2: even like the the big boy it's not a big boy doll it's very basic but it's also very intuitive and i've learned to kind of like get as much out of it i don't you know i don't want to i'm not a, a big uh um uh, what's the word Prick about uh, uh, Dawes and stuff I think if you can make something sound good even if it's the most even if it's fucking audacity or something like if you can make it sound good like yeah who like, cares? Um,
3: um do you know the song uh, Miss the rage with uh, with Trippy red
2: Miss the rage no I do not
3: I will I will send it to you um I don't I doubt there's a way that I can like maybe I. with,
2: uh, with cardi cardi um
3: like cardi B.
2: No, no, no! Uh, Playboy Cardi.
3: Oh, Playboy Cardi. Oh, Cardi with a T, not a D. I think, I think, Cardi. I think he's in that one. But that, um, that synth that they used is like a is is like a synth pad or, or something from FL Studios, like put in reverse, and mm. it, you know, uh, one of the most popular songs, at least for like the month of like maybe like June or July, with the most basic you know dumb. Yeah. the reason why i bring that up is yeah like at the end of the day like gear doesn't actually matter that much unless you're trying to make you know like you have a song like stairway to heaven that you want it to sound as good as stairway but at the end of the day you still need the idea you still need the the ability to play like mm-hmm. when you my favorite musicians um not necessarily for just like their instrument but who they are as a person is like jack white and how he uses, like, the most run-down stuff to make badass songs, you know? Like, I think it was, something like, um, the guitar. He had that red guitar. I don't know if it was from, like, a Target or or some sort of, like... he From oh a Target? Are you kidding yeah, me? I heard this story. I may be wrong. It may be, like, mixing two different stories together, but I think, like, Jack White had a guitar that was, like you know, from a place where you don't typically buy guitars and he like took it out on tour and, and just, like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if that's what he used to like record icky thump or something like that. But yeah, like when musicians, you know, at the end of the day, the gear isn't the most important thing. If your ideas are really, already good, you know, mm-hmm. like, if everything is already cool. Like you're kind of already there, you know, and right. but, you know, when i was i should say being more analytical of the drums of oh father i was like these sound like the logic um like drum uh, presets that they have like there's mm-hmm. a, this one called like bluebird um uh retro something i can't remember exactly but i was like i recognize that brush mm-hmm. on the snare sound and i was like oh mm-hmm. Sticky guy using some MIDI drums. It sounds really good. Like it's obviously mixed, right? It's not like you know the velocity is hitting super high, right? Like
1: higher,
3: right, you're usually going through it, but
1: yeah, that's a good but, ear. Dang,
3: I, it's honest- I think
1: Hold on, I'm gonna
2: actually bring up the the song file right now and see if you got the, the preset right because I think Logic and GarageBand like. You use very similar uh, pads and patches, not patches. Um,
3: A lot of them are the same, like the classic pianos, the the Mellotron, like the finger style bass, like they're all. all Yeah.
2: Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to see if you were right. Hold on. I'm going to. I hope not. This is going to be crazy. If you, if you (laughs) fucking got it. (laughs) Um, Let's see, which I used uh, the roots, the roots. Mm. Yeah
3: that's the one too. Cause there's, yeah, there's that one's on logic. There's that bluebird one. Um, there's a couple. The bluebird one
2: sounds great. Yeah. I really yeah. like that one.
3: I think that I think I remember that one. Cause like when I'd be, you know, like working some crappy day job on lunch, or whatever, like I just put my earbuds in and, and use my computer keyboard to like make beats and then go mm. and then properly record it on my actual drum set and all that stuff. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. So like, now, we talked about like the actual composition of it, how it is one of those like more simplistic chord progressions, but the way it's delivered is you know is is very intuitive. MIDI bass actually really surprised me. I was like, this feels like a, a person playing it. But again, if you're playing on like the MIDI keyboard, it's, you're going to translate that feeling anyways, and it's quantizing <clears throat> it. Um, how did you get those? They're, it's like those like it's it sounds like midi vocals but it doesn't sound like an actual pack like it sounds like somebody recorded their voice and then you chopped it up and then replayed it
2: are are you talking about the the ver the verse vocals of uh, the uh friend mia i uh, originally uh did the vocals on my own almost like that part was sort of inspired by um m83's midnight sitting because that's a fucking amazing song um you know that song i don't think i do know. oh you you've heard it in like some car commercial or some movie uh Great, great song, uh, but I really liked the vocals on that, and I could hear that on this song. Oddly enough, even though it's and Midnight City is way more like driving, like nighttime synth pop. Um, I still heard those vocals, and so I did a run through it, uh, and I was I was pretty uh, uh, okay with how I how I got the vocals down, and I showed it to my friend Ben. And Ben was like, I think you need to get some female vocals instead. And I was like, I don't know. I think they sound okay. And so I asked my friend, Mia, I was like, hey, Mia, can you do these vocals? I have this kind of idea. Can you just give me, I want you to hold these uh, three or four notes and and and, um, um, vowel sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, The ah... And so she sent me back several takes of of each of them and I just kind of chopped it up and made this kind of like rhythmic little um, piece to it using her vocals and then the fun part came uh, later on in the song when I started pitching them higher and lower and getting these just really wacky sounds out of it. By the liquor hits so punches it. That's where the vocals came from. Those are live song vocals that I just shifted and like fucked all the hell. <laughs> uh, but it has this crazy cool sound to it.
3: It honestly, I... And I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. I don't know if the song would feel as like intriguing from the get-go, like without it. Do you know what I mean? Like it just had, it had that start. And I was like, wow. I'm like, this feels like two worlds, like the folk and the synth pop world blending in, in such, a, mm. such a good way. Because like, you know, you have – um like the meme sort of metaphor where it's like your two favorite family or Disney Channel shows are colliding, like Hannah Montana on Sweet Life of Zach. Oh. You know, and it's like Neutron and
2: uh, and the fairly odd parents,
3: exactly, you know, and it's like if they're two shows that don't make sense, but you know, the higher ups just like, yeah, this is what we want, like for ratings, like right. the episode could really suck because the two characters just don't gel, right? But okay you have you know jimmy neutron and fairly odd parents or sweet life on deck and uh Ah. like there are two people that already are in the same sort of category and so they're they're gonna bounce off well with each other they're going to complement each other and that's what happens with these like electronic almost sampled vocals like with your 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 authentic sort of original like folk music that you (laughs) usually play and oh well thank you that that was the that was the
2: goal of this song and a lot of the songs on this album which is kind of mixing folk but like bringing in different little genres that get mixed with folk very often like i can you know i can maybe count on two hands artists who have successfully like mixed mix the genres in a in an interesting way well, um you, you so did. thank you
3: Course and and it's funny because I, um, I play drums for this band called uh, Cicada who plays in like the Brampton like Toronto area here and they (laughs) were the ones that actually um really recommended listening to the new Turnstile music because I'd been a fan (laughs) of and I'm not gonna retell the whole story because I already did it before and I don't want listeners to hear the same thing twice you know in a matter of like five days or whatever but long story short i was a fan of them before kind of fell off then Cicada tells me hey like you know, they're playing really good thrash metal ideas that are already fresh for that genre, but then they're including, like, 808 drum sounds and, like, psychedelic synths and just a song that's, you know, it feels, like, more, like, modern R&B and pop than it does, like, a thrash metal tune. Like, it doesn't even have Mm. more guitar. It's vocals and synths, right? And I started listening to it, and I was like, damn, like, I... I started craving more of this collision of genres that are actually mm-hmm. complementary. And then I'm not sure if you know the YouTube page. Um, it's called middle eight.
2: I do know middle eight. Yeah. I know middle eight.
3: They or the guy, whoever, however many people work it are fantastic. And I was watching a video of him talking about, um, I believe it's pronounced Bon Iver. I don't
2: think it's Iver. But yeah, uh, uh, Bonnie Verre, French for uh, "Good Winter."
3: Oh, really? Okay, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they were talking about how there was this. Um, um, my my fading memory of this shows how much uh, uh, how little attention I paid to this video as I was watching it. But the um, the video was talking about how Bon used um, this like I don't know if it's a synth or if it's some sort of like plugin to essentially like re. Harmonize his voice so mm. that, you can like sing, let's say, like middle C, and the synthesizer or plugin will add like E on top and G on the bottom to create an mm. like inverted triad, and it feels really big, but it happens in real time, right? And right, started craving music, um, that had more ex like more experimental vocals, but not in the sense of like oh. tone more in the sense of electronics and effects. And I, I wanted more music that had like some post-production that was experimental, not like a vocal fry or vocal distortion or somebody just kind of yeah. has an odd voice or whatever. And so when you came out with your song, I was like, yes, like this is it. is what I want, like this complimentary of like two worlds, you know, coming together. Um, mm. so for everybody listening, um, Evan has graciously given me the mp3 um, to this tune so it's me Spotify and Evan that hold this golden nugget of a track and uh, I'm going to I'm going to put little blurbs of it in in the podcast as we're as we're you know as we're talking and whatnot so listeners can actually hear what we're talking about in real time um, now in terms of the actual like story you know like the title is called oh father dot 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 what have I done? Is this,
1: mm-hmm.
3: is this another, is this like another non-fictional story like Emma says, or is this a fictional story?
1: Oh,
2: I can't, I can't tell you that. No. I'm not allowed to tell you that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit of both. A little, it's a little, bit of both. A little bit of both.
3: So what's, what's the, like, if you were to explain the story to somebody that's never heard the song, like what would you tell them?
2: Um, I would say, uh, I would tell them that it's about, um, kind of the, the trials and tribulations of, uh, of the, the, modern woman, that very, very basic, uh, kind of retelling of what the song is about, but there's a lot of different little aspects to it. Um, it's also simultaneously, it's an exploration of, um, uh, masculine archetypes too. Um, it's a, it's a little bit of everything, but kind of like with MSS, I, I like to, you know, not, you know, give everything a meaning, uh, because I want there to be some interpretation and some kind of, um, uh, some of your own interpretation attaching to it and you filling in the gaps yourself and making it personal.
3: Yeah, like well that's that's the that is like the the holy grail for the singer-songwriter. It's like I, I want to write a song that is, you know, I won't say it in percentages, which is what comes to mind, but enough of a song that's like subjective to me because I'm telling a story, but it's not past that that line where it's too subjective, where the listener can't interpret some, you know, lyrics or a verse or something and and involve themselves in it, you know, spiritually and emotionally. Like you mm. want to be able to listen to a song and say, I, I feel what the singer is talking about. And I also, it immediately makes me think of this very specific memory, whether it's good or bad, right? And now I'm invested in this song with it. Now, when you, so you had the idea for this song in 2019 is it something that you kind of just sat down and went back to it and said, oh, like, I like this idea. And then it just like came out. Or was it a song that you were constantly trying to find, you know, the direction for?
2: That's a great question. Um, I think that's, it's a, it's a song where I kind of already had the structure. I knew the chords. It was a matter of, um, really, uh, sitting down and really, and, 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 building it out. Um, the, the lyrically the song had kind of two different modes. It first started off from eye perspective and there was no, um, uh, there was no uh, perspective of, uh, of a, a a a single person, it was it was from a first person's per perspective and not a third person perspective. Right. Um, and as I kind of kept moving forward through it uh, and kept nurturing the song, I didn't I never revisited. It's always been kind of like when I sit down at the guitar from about 2019 to about around the time I started recording and finishing up the song, it would be one of my go-to kind of like oh yeah, let me kind of. Play through this riff a little bit, and so I keep nurturing the song and really living in it. And so I had a lot of key lyrics uh, that I, I first started with was um, the blue bowl on a cracked shelf, um, the Jack White reference on the third verse, right. um, uh, in, in incorporating the element of of God and going to a church and hearing a reverend speak. Um, uh, The the incorporation, the the line about the the mirror was always a part of it. Um, And then as I started rethinking the song as a third person uh, story type song, that's when I started shifting the language over to this kind of, this person and talking about their day-to-day trials and tribulations. Um, uh, You know, where I started coming up with the lines like, uh, bruised words, all the things she felt. Uh, uh, white jacks toss her around like gold. Um, she twitches at the thought of getting to heaven. Um, that's when that's when that started really coming up. Uh, when I finally realized that this isn't a an I song, it's a it's a this person type song, and I wanted to kind of color it in and, and uh, give these very charged uh words to this character and uh really kind of build this tension but also this kind of helpless tension where you don't know where where it's supposed to go um i don't know if that answers your question i just kind of started rambling a little bit
3: (laughs) i like i i'm like i'm always so curious about like the the story and progression of how like you know, like how something came to be, because the way I see pretty much art in any form of entertainment, maybe excluding as much as I, you know, am entertained by like like jackass or whatever, but I mean like comedy, you know, plays, film, TV, whatever the case is. Like I always, you know, you look at your your logic session or uh, your like staff paper or your canvas or your notebook or whatever. And it's like blank. And, and I can imagine for like, I'm not a singer songwriter, but I can imagine for some that you look at this paper and you have this ambition to create something, but the paper is almost screaming at you. Like, come on, man, what are you going to do? Like, are you up with something? And I'm always so curious to hear how, how things become, because I've heard stories of artists that they're like I made this song in 10 minutes and I wasn't even trying to. Or I you know, spent 5 years on this one riff and it took so much heartache and you know literally putting myself through hell to then realize that this riff has been waiting for this like all along, you know? Like there's a story of um the lead singer of Coldplay um and he's on Howard Stern and he's talking mm-hmm how i'm not sure what artist he was trying to um sort of like imitate while recording something but um there's that coldplay song that's like look at the stars i don't know what the name of that tune is Look how they shine yellow yellow thank you yeah that's (laughs) i'm not that big like i respect him i'm not like a crazy coldplay fan but uh, (laughs) the story for that tune is he was trying to imitate uh some artist And then within, like, 10 minutes, he was like, oh, wow, like, this actually sounds really good. And so they dropped what they were doing and focused on that. And Yellow, Mm. big song in the catalog of Coldplay and modern, you know, 21st century music that was made with no intention and little effort to start, Mm. to to get the momentum going, you know? Then there's other songs that, you know, like, I think about, like, their way to heaven. And I don't know the story behind that, but I would assume that that's a song that takes like an egregious amount of time to go through, you know, or, or something from queen that's got all this like blend of, um you know, like classical music in it. It's like mm-hmm. how long did the artist sort of sit there and like, just, you know, writing the whole song out. Nah, this is trash. Rips the whole piece of paper out, throws it away. You know, leaves the studio, comes back and scrambles to find that garbage piece of paper because oh, yeah. make it work. You know, and I'm, I'm so curious. So yes, that that 100 did you know fulfill and answer my my curiosity. <laughs> um, now, in our last conversation, we were talking um, about like artists that influence us in our writing, whether like indirect or direct. Now, with oh, father, did you did you have like the same? Sort of influences or, or influences come for, for this tune. Could
2: could you uh uh repeat the question again? You you uh, you kind of stuttered.
3: Yeah, I, I forgot to um to mention at the beginning of the podcast, so I apologize. But for all the listeners, we're using Zoom, so the the Wi-Fi gods will give mm-hmm. us a break whenever they can. But the question was um in the last podcast we talked about. Uh, direct or or indirect influences to like your art and what you create and, and I was curious if there were any mm-hmm. influences for the creation of oh father
2: mm. yeah that's a that's a good question um this would be like the perfect section to start like sprinkling in some mm. of the lines uh in, in some of the little uh, sections of the song um but you can hear in the chorus um there's this kind of almost like bird-like sound that uh, uh, is what happens when I record myself whistling, and then I run it through uh, a phaser, and you can kind of hear that during the chorus. Um, that is a, that's a that's a direct rip of um, the song Pride by Kendrick Lamar. Um, when you hit, hear Pride by Kendrick Lamar, uh, I think during, the chorus, maybe I was't there. I forget the I'm yeah. rusty on the chorus a little bit, but there's this
1: oh, father,
2: What have I done? I prob- that <laughs> the-, the audience has no idea what I'm talking oh. about. But if you hear the choruses, these kind of whistly bird-like sounds are definitely a, a big inspiration point for me. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, the vocals uh, is a big uh, uh, is a big nod to M83's Midnight Sitting. Um, and then near the end, uh, I make reference sort of to. Um, one of my own songs, uh, uh, if I got you, uh, off of my first album, "Perennial millennial, uh, and what I do on that song is, uh, or well, what my producer did on that song was run all of these instruments through like an echo and, uh, a bunch of reverb, uh, like, like physical reverb machines. He physically had to run, run it through these machines and not, he, he didn't use any, uh, uh, plugins and uh, essentially live uh, uh, ran it through these machines and it makes this almost like enveloping like never-ending like cavernous sound that just sounds super psychedelic and weird and it flips right back into the uh, the last verse and chorus of the song and uh, at the end of O Father I did a very similar thing with kind of the uh repeated vocals, I started kind of shifting all of the, uh, the pitch up and down and up and down. And then I ran them through these very intense, uh, high velocity, uh, uh, echo, echo plugins. And it gives it this very kind of revving psychedelic sound. And it like flips right back into the last chorus. Um, Definitely one of the more weirder points of the song. And it's already a very weird song i'll admit that um and those are those are definitely three big pieces those are the direct influences um as far as the indirect i mean i'm always influenced by uh dylan i think this song has some kind of leonard cohen a little bit of fiona apple uh especially in the lyrics a little bit um and i mean those influences are always kind of working, working through me. Um, and, and, and honestly mentioned earlier, uh, Bonnie Bear is a big uh, influence as far as uh, me wanting to mix folk and then implement these kind of post-production, like electronic elements. Um, those are definitely kind of the, the big pieces to the, uh, the influence uh, pie as it were
3: yeah it's funny you mentioned fiona apple i just started listening to her um i want to say about like a month ago um and i, I think it's her 1999 release the tune uh, paper bag has been just like
2: uh when the pawn or uh or is it a title
3: um you're saying that sorry it cut out for a little second there. you're saying the the album title of the uh, the record
2: yeah, was it was it the album uh title like T-I-D-A-L or was it uh when the pawn?
3: It might be when the pawn. Mm. Whatever whichever record has paper bag as the opener. That's like the first um the first song of the record. Um yeah, Fiona Apple has kind of like her own lane. Then again, I'm not like you know, well, well versed in like all mm-hmm. the nineties, because that was definitely a very um interesting time in music especially like post 80s um but yeah fiona apple is definitely definitely Mm -hmm. um
2: now yeah definitely like the seed to a lot of uh incredible like especially female singer-songwriter but just in general music uh you know you wouldn't have you wouldn't have uh uh fucking regina specter laura marling um uh definitely definitely angel Olson as well um yeah she's she's absolutely incredible um and she's definitely like the inflection point for a lot of uh, uh great art i can definitely see kind of like the trajectory of her and then the, you know post fiona apple you can't do that with many artists no you no know what I
3: mean? yeah for sure yeah i um I'm in like this this weird spot in like the, the music that I listen to where my brain wants to find a whole bunch of like new stuff, new music, <clears throat> not necessarily new as in when it's released, but like new to me, you know, like I'm craving like new, new stories and new histories like from, from other musicians. At the same time, I'm also like really digging the music I haven't heard in like four or five years. You know, like I think mm. I think the mo- the record I've I've been listening to the most the past like two weeks is actually Iowa by by Slipknot, which I haven't heard like, mm. that record in a couple of years. You know, like um I have the antennas to hell CD, which is basically like a greatest hits. Um mm. funny story about that, not to get too too off topic, but um the album that they're coming out with now is going to complete their, um, uh, what's it called? Their record contract with Roadrunner Records. And Gone <laughs> is not flexing in a, in a bad sense, but flexing how all seven albums have all been legitimate albums. You know, like Self-Titled, Iowa, Subliminal Verses, I'll Hope is Gone, you know, uh, The Great Chapter, um, uh, We Are Not Your Kind. And then whatever they're going to come up with next. And then I was like, Oh, but that's weird. I have this Antends to hell CD, which is basically a greatest hits. And I'm like, and now Sean's saying that, you know, they don't have that. And then I'm like looking at the CD while I'm driving in, not actually in motion, but I'm in the car in Toronto and I'm like, Oh, this was released under Warner, not R- mm. R-. So they were able to do, you know, live music or, or live CDs. But it wasn't a part of the contract. It's just a little off topic for a second. But yes, um, a little random piece of history that you know, select people will
2: give a shit about, like me.
3: But uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> you got it. You got to flex the, the music knowledge a little bit.
3: Just a little bit. Just a little bit of history. Um, but yeah, like I've been listening to a lot of Iowa, um, and sort of going back as like as to why that record is so like guttural and 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 vicious you know and and like the whole story behind that and because i'm i'm craving you know i'm craving a a story like from artists if that makes sense you know yeah Mm a lot of music i was listening to towards the beat like here in canada summer is is like six weeks like at best you know and it's there's always like the weird weather changes so like proper summer doesn't happen for too too long um and so towards the beginning of you know like july um i'd be listening to like kenny hoopla or doja cat or one of the thousands of features that travis barker has been has been doing with artists or oh yeah
2: he's he's been a
3: monster been recently everywhere it's been crazy and and i'm listening to them and i'm like these are all really fun songs but i know that they don't necessarily mean anything like that much or at least it's not being delivered as such you know it's like you know kiss me more by doja cat may have some personal meaning but it's not being delivered at least in my opinion in, in a way that's like this is a very serious song you know and not serious as in it's like you have to straighten up and be respectful but serious in a sense of like this has some some meaning to it and so i've been i've been looking for music that's got you know a little bit more um a little bit more of a story a little bit more background something more uh like raw if that makes mm-hmm. sense that, i mean
2: yeah no i i totally know what you mean um i i really love hearing about um albums that kind of have like some secret history or some kind of like oh well they did it under these conditions even if i don't like it like one of the more, like, legendary, uh, like, experimental rock albums uh, during the 60s. I don't personally like it, but I love the backstory to it. It's called uh, Trout Mask Replica by Captain Deeper. Oh, Zapier. my God, dude. The, the weirdest album. I don't know if I like it. I don't think I've heard it all the way through, but I just love the backstory of, like, this <laughs> dude mercilessly, like, berating his band and just like being a fucking monster to them but and he's like is rehearsing them to like no no you need to be this needs to be really really flat and you need to do this and that and that, this insane backstory
3: that whole story is is so ridiculous and like how did you find out about about trout mass replica
2: Oh my my dad loves uh, Frank Zappa. That's how I heard about it.
3: So did Zappa um, play
1: on
2: that? Or no, Zappa I think did I don't know if Zappa produced it, but he he was like the label owner and he was like he heard uh Beefheart's first album Safe as Milk. Or maybe he met Beefart. I don't know the the exact like one to one uh like chronology, but right. the point is Beefheart, had him on his label uh, and just, you know, Zappa, Zappa. So he's like, so he's like, just do what you want, do what makes you feel good. And so I guess Captain Beefheart like started doing that. And so, so anyways, my, my dad, huge Zappa head, loves Zappa. Um, And, and anything related to Zappa he was into, except for Captain Beefheart, but he told me about it anyways. Right. um so my dad's the reason why i know about captain beefheart and just this insane story of an album
3: yeah i found it i was uh i was playing in this pop punk band back in 2015 going into 2016 and mm-hmm. we were playing at this uh this uh vegan bar called d Beatstro, like b-e-a-t stro very corny place um very odd place, very weird for a punk, pop- mm. you know. Clearly, not a place where they're like into like that suburban pop punk. Like, we're talking, yeah, like, you know, a like- pop punk band at a
2: bistro is that what you said? Like, a bistro? Well,
3: it's not actually a bistro, it's called D beat, like B E A T stro. So, it's a play on the word bistro. Oh, okay, okay. It's a, it was a vegan cafe, but like the music that they played. <laughs> At that time, for me, being like 16 was like ultra weird. You know, like at that time, I was into like a lot of pop punk, a lot of warp tour, um, you know, mm. started getting into like funk. So that was like the experimental side at that age. But I walked in and they were playing the opening tune of Trout Mass Replica that's like bam, 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 bam. And it's like so weird. And I'm loading in and I'm like, God damn, this song is like so jarring. I'm like, what? Like, what even is this? And I see the guy, and he's just like making this drink, and he's like, his hair is like moving like crazy, and he's like so into it, and he's like, ah na na, and like singing like how, <laughs> and I'm like. like what the fuck am i walking into right now
2: wait is it like on the radio or is the band playing it?
3: no no it's it's in the on the radio like it's it's oh okay it's a song from the guy's phone like he was like
2: okay what a awful way to bring in your bring in your customers
3: it was so weird and okay the time is at the time too it was like it was getting into like the nighttime we're talking like six like almost seven o'clock because like one of the first shows i got to drive myself because mind you i'm like i'm 21 now going on 22 at the time i like just turned 16 right so it was like winter Mm. and um we walk in and there's people sitting down you know the other band came from the u.s from michigan i remember them they're called backpacks they're now called if only if only i doubt those dudes remember me because i was like underage and shit but shout out to (laughs) them it was just like the weirdest start to like a really hyped up show because i'm like okay pop punk band from michigan they had opened up for um i can't remember what artist but like an artist sort of in the in the line of like silverstein so like the fact that this band was coming here was to look good it was going to look good for us like online right yeah and you just like walk in and it's just a weird place and weird like spot for the stage just everything just feels really weird and then I, you know i'm like loading in my gear and then Captain Beefheart starts playing. And I didn't know that's what it was. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, what even is this? And yeah, like the, the guy at the uh, the cafe, like bar, you know, the barista is like so into it. And I'm sitting there like, what? Like, and so we walk out and my whole band, like we look at each other. We're like, what the fuck? Like, what's <laughs> happening right now? And then the front man was like, I'm going to ask him if I can like play something else and then we go up and they have like the little like ipod touch um like the fatter one like sitting on like the dock and then that dock was connected to like four or five speakers or whatever like and you could wire and i remember my front man's like captain Beefheart, and that name just made me laugh and i don't know why and it still does to this day it makes me think of like a character that napoleon dynamite's brother would like create you know like how he talks about mm-hmm. a tiger in that movie i can't remember the yeah. what's the brother's name is it is kip it? kip that's what kip. it is kip yeah mm-hmm. and i'm like this is something kip would do i'm like that's what i feel and then it just always stuck with me and then i forgot about it years passed and then it's like 2019 i'm in uh the Vancouver airport on my way to Coachella. I connect to some Wi-Fi and there's a video talking about Trout Mask Replica. And it's either um middle eight or another one of those like music YouTube like blogs where they go really in depth and have like great visuals. And I like watch the story on that and, and I think some of the story is like he had like either sheet music or like demo tape for the musicians playing and mm-hmm given like different stuff and then they were to play at the same time and i was like this is really weird and so i didn't even finish the video because i was like this is just like weird like but weird in in an annoying way you know and then next on like the recommended was like a video of them playing live like uh, it looked like tv recording and the drummers got like this like uh um acrylic like clear drum set and even the live performance was just like jarring i'm like what what is this? And there's something about like the YouTube algorithm at that time, it just started giving me the weirdest stuff. And Captain Beefheart was like the stuff I wasn't a fan of, even though you know I'd like I'd want to be a fan of that to just say, like, yeah,
2: <laughs> just say that, yeah, but
3: I can get behind it, but I can't. But there was, um, there's this album, um, I can't remember what it's called because I have the memory of like a breadcrumb but it's this album that basically it how would you word it it's like an album about like alzheimer's but it's there's oh
2: i know exactly what you're talking about i know exactly what you're talking about it's called um it's by the caretaker it's called everywhere at the end of the time
3: yes the caretaker that's exactly what it is that Mm. is probably the most fascinating album i've ever ever heard or you know like gone in depth to know the story i haven't listened to it Mm -hmm. i'm legitimately like fearful to listen to that album because i don't know what lies beyond but i've heard the story behind how the guy like how the guy sort of captured the the feeling of that the feeling of like forgetting and i'm like like have you seen that video that like kind of breaks down the um the whole story behind it and the composer i've
2: not i haven't seen the video but i've uh i remember first hearing about it i was at my buddy's place uh jake shout out to uh jake simpson um he uh he we were all kind of sitting Talk. around we were playing video games and he I threw on the caretaker
3: named, you have a friend named jake simpson yeah i have a friend named jake simpson like an old oh kid. really sweet <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, is this the same guy? I'm like, nah, this guy's like like thousands of miles away. <laughs> it can't be the same person.
2: That's probably all. probably not the same person, but still, that's cool. Anyway. But uh, yeah, we're like hanging out, playing video games. I think we're playing Smash Bros. And he's like, dude, you got to check this out. And he threw on the caretaker. And I just remember going, this is like intense. And he didn't even tell me the backstory. I was just like, this is really like... Bizarre. I feel like I've just been like dropped like way into deep sea water. And I'm just like stuck in like a glass case. That's what it felt like to me. I, I felt- and and then I looked it up and I learned the story about how uh I don't know if he did he interview people or, or like did he work at like a like a um
3: I don't know an elderly he-
2: assistance uh I don't I don't remember the story exactly, but I remember reading it and going. Holy shit.
3: Well, I know yeah. what like the video that I watched talked about how like that you know, like like Alzheimer's has sort of like stages to it and and it it, pro- it progresses in in a negative way. I, maybe regresses is is the word that's proper, but like you start to forget little things and then you start to forget more and more and then you get to a point where you can't really remember much but you're still aware of like the self and that you're, Mm -hmm. and then you start to forget that. And then at that point, you're kind of just thinking about memories, which is why like the music feels like a century old. And I think what they were doing is that they had original compositions. And then that recording was played through like an old, like, you know, like whatever 5.1 or 7.0 point or 11.0, point whatever, like sound system. And then they sort of like either reamped or re-recorded it like that to make it feel like really old. And I'm not sure if he really worked with anybody that was, you know, suffering from Alzheimer's. But I mean, sounds like he definitely achieved it because mm-hmm. that. and there the video that I watched that kind of got me more into the story was talking about that album and also about this painter who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and draw mm. himself like every month or some sort of interval, like a, maybe not a week as much, but like every month or something like that, or I don't maybe want to say a year. Cause I'm not sure how, how quickly it turns into something, mm. you know, uh, detrimental, but he would draw himself and you'd see like this very nice photo detailed, you know, it's it's not like a detailed photo in the sense of like what you'd use for like the lion king like not every strand of hair is there but it's a very clear photo on who that that person Mm -hmm. and then you can kind of see like the shape of his body as sort of like a trapezoid with a circular head and like a pointed nose and his glasses and then as that whatever that interval of time progresses it's like it starts to wither away and then Mm -hmm. like the last photo is like two random lines offset with a half circle and then this other thing and you can recognize what it is cuz you've seen the photos before or the mm-hmm. draw before but what you have now is this mangled you know
2: yeah
3: it like geometry at, at some point you know and it's 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 so crazy and and I've talked to so many people or I've asked rather about the caretaker album and chart mass replica and everybody's <laughs> like I have no idea like what you're even talking about and i'm like you on your own accord will watch that if you so desire i don't want to tell you to listen to it like do it if you want and now we get to talk
1: about Now now
3: we get to talk about it exactly yeah like there's there's a lot of like weird experimental stuff out there Mm -hmm. you know i've been listening to um do you know the band yellow magic orchestra I think it may have cut up.
2: Could you say it again?
3: Yeah, they're called. Um, do you know the band uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra?
2: Oh, um, yes. Uh, the I know. I, I know about them specifically because uh, I think the front man. I'm going to look this look this up. The front man or the major uh, uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto. Yes. Um, the amazing composer and, and their cover on that album of a Day Tripper, mm, oh, <laughs> so good!
3: Yeah, I I, I found they have it. a
2: cover of a. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say that they have a. I think everyone should go listen to their first album, Solid State Survivor. It's like a yellow background, and they're all like looking at the camera, very kind of like a. Uh, very prim and proper and they have a cover of the Beatles day tripper, but it's in this like really herky jerky, like new wave synth pop vibe. And it's just such a cool cover. It's a great cover.
3: I found it by chance. Um, and the reason being is like part of like this company that I run called Tritone, like part of the things that I do is, is create commercials for company that then for companies that then get aired on like Spotify and all that stuff. Mm, Okay. I'm always like looking for examples of how bands or, you know, like music that's made specifically for a commercial. Like I think Tyler, the creator just did something with like Coca-Cola or Pepsi. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yellow magic orchestra did a beer commercial and they reimagined. uh it was, I think it's, I'm not sure what exactly, like, their ethnicity is. I'm not sure if it's, like, Japanese or something. Um, but they made a commercial for, like, you know, one of the, like, hometown, like, beer brands. And they have that song called Dean, Um That it's definitely a lot. It's, like, a it's, it, it feels a little bit like video game music. Like, it feels very, um, like, anthemic and triumphant. Um, But it also has little moments that are a little bit more like cheeky and bright, like kind of like, you know, if you were to play like an old like Nintendo game. And then for this commercial, they went and took the song and essentially reimagined everything but the actual melodic notes on the paper of like the main melody. So they took this tune that felt so, you know, very like 70s, like definitely an arena song and then turned it into this. I don't even know how to word how they how they changed it. It's something. It's just one of those things you got to just listen to it. But I found it by chance, and then I just went into this deep dive of Yellow Magic Orchestra. Mm. I've been listening to. Uh, they have a performance at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles back in 1979, and I'm like watching them perform and listening to all the tunes and and, and everything. And it's like I can definitely hear the melodies that they came up with that were inspired by other music from the 70s but also drove ideas for the 80s you know what i mean right because it's 1979 it's like in that switch where it's like we're moving from one sound to like a new sound and and Mm -hmm. you know we have this this lane that we've been taking and it's going to separate into two very different things you know like you imagine like rock in the 80s versus pop in the 80s and then like metal they're like very different and jazz and all that stuff too and and it just continues to to feed this like everlasting thought i have of how music essentially takes a left turn or even a 180 like per decade for like the last 100 years in Mm -hmm. history like from 1910 to 2010, you know, now it's, you know, 110 years, but like yeah. every decade has like switched and I'm always so curious on like okay, what was like the act or the concert, you know, that happened like at the end of a specific decade that channeled a new artist that ended up breaking through like 2 years later. You know, like like I'm looking at like musicians now and we're in 2021. And there's, like one of my favorite artists. Um, that's new. Do you know Tizo Touchdown?
2: Yeah, yeah. On the uh, he's on the new uh, uh, Tyler album.
3: It just it froze for a little bit there. You were saying it's on the new.
2: Yeah, uh, I I said um, I I do know Tizo Touchdown. Uh, he's on the new uh, Tyler album. Uh, he's got a lot of like. A uh, little bit of Prince, a little bit of, a little bit of Bowie, a little bit of, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Rick James, too. He's yeah. he's fucking cool. He's fucking cool.
3: He has this song called uh, Social Cues that I'm like, I, this is what I want, like, more of from, like, the pop world. Where it's like, we're back to, like, the, not necessarily a real drummer recording, but, like, what feels like real drums And they're, you know, they've been sampled or, you know, they've been um, like, there's like a a drummer playing like an electronic drum kit, but it's a real person playing. And the vocals are like, you know, how singers will sort of talk yet sing and rap like a verse at the same time. Like it's sort of in time with the song, but it's also not, it kind of just feels like there's like this burst of like sentences and it
2: just yeah Give me, give me a good example.
3: Um, one, the, one of them is like social cues. I'm thinking, mm, my brain is drawing a blank. <laughs> I'm like trying to think I'm like, cause I know artists have done this many times before you'll, this will definitely happen in like the metal world where there's like a buildup happening to go to like a sick breakdown. And then, you know, the singer's just talking about like, like if you ever feel down and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it doesn't feel like what the artist is saying is not in line rhythmically with the music, but it's also not like they're trying to hit a specific downbeat. You know what I mean? It's
2: okay. Of, I know. I know what you're talking about. It's
3: kind of like a speech that
2: half rap, half-spoken word.
3: Yeah, you know, it, it's so like in that song by Tizo, it's like those are the verses. You know, like at least twice throughout the song, and I'm listening to it and I'm like trying to like understand the the, the timing of it. And I'm like, it's so raw, like it's coming from him. It's like, I don't know if that would even be replicated live, you know, Mm -hmm. such a like in the moment, like capture and it just perfectly fits. And, and I'm, you know, he like, he's got like the nails in his hair and yeah, Tyler feature, like at the beginning of the song, you can hear them like clank. Like you can hear them, like the nails, like, Oh, wait, that's
2: what that is. I'm hurting, I thought he had like, uh, I thought he had gotten some shakers or something. That's crazy.
3: Cause he walks around with it. I'm like, that sounds like that. Like, it just sounds like he like turned his head and the mic just like picked up those little like, tap
2: crazy. Okay. I need to list, re-listen to that song.
3: I'm like, I want this decade of music. Like we're, you know, 2020 was basically a write-off year. Um, but I want like this decade of music to have more and more artists that are like cutting edge, not only in their personality, because obviously that's a huge part of an emerging artist in the digital era that we're in.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: but even just artistically, like take something that I already know how it sounds, but process and regurgitate it in a way that feels fresh and brand, mm-hmm. you know, because like, I don't know what kind of tech is going to help us push into a new direction, musically speaking. But then again, people probably said that in the forties, you know, like what could, like after the electric guitar amp, what could we possibly have to create a technological advance that further, you know, pushes the, the envelope for musicians. And then it's like, check out the synthesizer or the, Drums, or you know, like vocal correction, or even the
2: mommy yeah. bear, bon so you we're know, a full dog with like crazy plugins, right?
3: Yeah, it's like everything, you know what I mean? Like yeah. everything we have now. So it's like you could say, Oh, they're you know, we've hit the limit, but you'll never know till till you know type deal. But I'm, yeah. I'm like really excited to see like what this decade will be for artists. Like, what's the, mm-hmm. what's the new shit gonna be? Like, who's gonna go out there and really, you know push the envelope and be like I'm in my own lane and I'm here to do my own thing you know with or without you you know what I mean
1: yeah Mm -hmm.
2: it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot of potential but and but there's also a lot of uncertainty because I don't think anyone anyone knows right now and there's so many different avenues that one can go down you know there's Mm -hmm. they're kind of like pop and indie pop and then you have like so all over the place right now, and there's uh so many different sounds happening, and then and then you know YouTube and TikTok kind of
1: mm.
2: also are its own kind of beasts as far as music goes. Yeah. So there's so many different avenues yeah. for uh for people to go down.
3: Absolutely. So with your music, you have the perennial millennial, mm-hmm says you have oh father i believe per- per- perennial millennial is your only
2: album right only album and then i have the the three singles and i have a couple like loose singles before that um but the three new singles i'm not ready for another decade emma says and oh father are going to be on an upcoming uh album which i hope to you know officially announce sometime soon i'm still gonna be like workshopping it I'm doing it all on my own you know producing mixing mastering all on my own so I and since it's my first time I really want to like workshop it and I want to show people and get like opinions thoughts and really just kind of hammer out everything uh before I uh go full go you know full full fully down the rabbit hole with it um so but yeah that's that's the plan. Full album, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, and that I'll try to get it out as quick as possible.
3: Awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, that's, that's one thing. Um, actually, you know what? There was one question I had for you. I know that me bringing up the album kind of felt like, I was like, yeah, so let's wrap it up. But there's actually one thing I wanted to ask.
1: Okay, I'm ready.
3: Um, when you have released music, do you fall into that trap of like, the songs maybe it's not a trap. Cause I, I can't say like, I've never, you know, released a song on my own, but I imagine it feels like a trap. Like you release a song and now it's out of your hands. Like it's on district kid and district kids like, yeah. in like three weeks, your song's gonna be out. Make sure everybody pre-saves it and blah, blah, blah. Do you get like this, like immense, like stress. That's like, Oh my God. Like now it's actually done. Like it's out of my hand and this bird is like flying on its own. And now it's in the clouds and I can't see it. Like, do you get that feeling?
2: Oh, oh every every single day literally with oh father it came out and i was like like oh wait hold on should i go back should i take it back should i change this oh, oh crap you know that happens to me all the time um i always worry like oh uh did i is this too loud is this too low should i redo this and uh, you know you you wor- you worry about kind of your, your little creations and you want them to do well and I think it's it's twofold on one level you know adjusting the, the volume or the mix ever so slightly one way or another is not gonna you know make you an overnight sensation right. uh, but at the same time you also want like that own pride in your in your work. I don't know if it's totally achievable. Uh, I think you can get really close. Um, I think for me doing it on my own definitely heightens it a little bit because I'm not relying on, you know, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to pay fucking money for some dude to just, just compress the shit out of my fucking song. You know what I mean? Which is half of what mastering artists do nowadays. And, I don't know. I, I operate, I think I mentioned this last time I operate from the, the JPEG mafia stance. One of my favorite, uh, hip hop artists right now. He said, I'm not, he, I think he said like word for word. Um, why would I give, uh, why would I pay money for someone to fuck up my song when I can fuck it up all on my own? (laughs) (laughs) And that, that's how I feel about it. Um, and I, but at the same time, I want to feel good about, my work. And so that's kind of my goal with this album, doing it all on my own, not relying on, uh, any production house or this and that. I want to do it all on my own, but I also want to make sure I do it good and and do it well. And, um, you know, put my, put my all into making sure that it sounds good. Um, so, so yeah, I I worry all the all the time about my mm. about my babies, but at the same time, you know your babies are gonna grow whether you whether you really just hold on to it as much as you can and never let it go out. Um, or you release it as sloppily as you can and the best you can do is meet somewhere in the middle.
3: Yeah. yeah. you think if if you had like let's say you're you know you're working with a label and you've got like i don't know mm-hmm. chris lord Alge or or um jack antonoff or whomever you know what i mean
2: like oh so, that'd
3: be sick though now that i think about it, that'd be so badass but like
2: that'd be so that, badass
3: the production team who you know because like i know labels you know stereotypically and 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 probably do it all the time um are very like controlling you know if artists mm-hmm. like, Art on one hand and product, you know, in the same conversation. Do you think if you had like a production team with a label that it would make you more stressed out because half the job is being done by somebody else? And you, you're you not necessarily in the control room to be like, okay, I'm going to change this because the label's doing it. Do you think you, that would be
2: mm-hmm. more? Uh, that for me comes down to a level of trust. How much do I trust this person and their vision? Um, when it came to Perennial Millennial, uh, I did one or two songs my first day with the producer, shout out to Lucas Carpenter, Outhouse Records, um, and we did that, those fir- that first day or two and I was immediately like, enamored with what he did and how he went about creating music and, his, uh, and just the work ethic and so I was like, alright, I trust him doesn't mean that there's not times where we would butt heads or I had an idea and he had an idea um or there it doesn't mean there aren't certain songs where I was like I wish we could have done x y and z with it um but at the end of the day I trusted him to work on it and to create the songs and uh push him to a place where we both agreed um if I was working with a team where I didn't really like what they did, even if it sounded really, you know, if if I was working with the mastering artist who did the last Beyonce album, uh, but if I didn't like that Beyonce album, I'm not going to trust him with my song. Even if it's like top chart, like, I don't, I don't care. If I like the work you do and I trust you with my song, then, then I, I won't necessarily have a problem. Um that's kind of where where I land on that question. It's all about trust. It's, it's all about do you believe in the work that this person's doing?
3: Yeah. Like for me like one of the producers I've I would love to work with is like Rick Rubin. Like he's Oh yeah. The god, but every one of my favorite albums that he's helped produce has either been like the breakthrough or like the album for a band that's like this is the breakthrough or it's an album that says, no, no, we're here to stay. Or it's an album that like brings them back together, you know, like Mm. toxicity is like one of the earlier releases for a system of a down.
2: Yeah. Their second album.
3: Yeah. And that's like, you know, getting right out there to the biggest possible audience, you know, with Rick Rubin's help, or you have like subliminal verses from Slipknot like post Iowa you know, where it's like, no, no, we're here to stay. Like, even though Iowa was the complete opposite of what radios and labels and all the industry people wanted to slip not to do, it's like, here's a whole other side of the band with Rick's help. And then you've got like, like one of my all-time favorite albums is the new Abnormal by The Strokes that came out last year.
2: I Oh, loved- did they work with uh, Rick Rubin on that one? And he like
3: brought him back, you know? And I, that was my, in- like, aside from Reptilia back when I was like 12 and played that song at some like restaurant like jam or whatever yeah. i like never listened like i didn't even recognize that they had songs in like the spider-man movies like it just never it never clicked you know and then the new abnormal came up um i think it was i saw it after a fantano um review
1: and yeah
3: it was like he was like yeah it's really good and rick rubin i'm like rick rubin boom gonna listen to it and i like yeah. to front to back <laughs> In my typical style of like really listening to an album, like I'll, I'll put headphones on, I'll just lay on the floor and just like listen to it. And just like no phone, no distractions, you know, and just spend 40 minutes instead of on TikTok, like listening to an album, right? And I was like, holy crap, this album is amazing. And then I started looking yeah. at what Ruben has done. And I'm like, damn, this like, the only time I want to r- work with Rick is if it's like I have something that I could, you know, break through an audience, but I need that extra push or people are questioning me and what i'm doing if i'm ever doing something or it's like everything's about to crumble we're about to lose our deal we need to call in rick like rescue heroes and come yeah
2: to- <laughs> you know? but- he's the, he's done that for for a lot of people
3: yeah he's he's a beast i mean he's a beast too, is he's- getting credit with like the lord album well i guess there's some controversy with that as well but uh
1: yeah, mm-hmm.
3: so great people out there man but um. Yeah, that was one little question I Because I'm always curious to hear what people Think, especially right After or before a release You know, like when, when Tyler You know, announced like the new record You know, Call Me If You Get Lost It was like very confident It was like, I know this shit slaps And you're going to know this shit slaps When you hear it as well You know, mm-hmm. with Igor It's like not a lot of talking Just more like doing Like, you, this is so different than what I've done Just, you know, we'll see if the crowd likes it or not So Always curious to hear how an artist feels about that. But, my man, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope uh, we didn't run too late because I know you said you got some stuff to do later on. But, I don't uh, know. We're
2: good. We're good.
3: Awesome, my man. So, Um, when this album comes out, let's do another episode. Let's talk about the, uh, the full record or when you've got another tune, um, to all the listeners. Thank you for listening to this podcast and this episode of the flat five, make sure to go listen to Oh Father and all the releases, uh, from Evan. Um, by now the listeners would have heard some clips of the, in parts of the songs and all that. And I'll make sure that we get that in there. So, um, yeah, my man, like I said, thank you so much for, for coming on the show again. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, of course. And thank you for having me on. Um, For all the listeners, if you want to follow me, uh, you can follow me on Instagram, uh, Evan Alexander Moore. Um, And then I'm on all of the the streaming platforms. I'm on Bandcamp. Uh, Send some money my way if you want it. Go buy the single. Go buy an album. Um, Peace and love, y'all.
1: Absolutely.
3: All righty. Well, we will talk soon, everybody. Take care.
1: episode,
4: please leave us a review on iTunes.
5: Python is a technology and community built upon the goodwill and volunteer time of thousands of contributors from the core devs inside cpython to the authors of hundreds of thousands of external packages over on pypi until recently the only full-time folks have been at the psf doing very important work but that work has been largely outside of cpython the technology itself in july 2021 the psf created the python developer in residence position the first person in that role is Lucas Langa, and he's here to tell you how it's going and how it'll benefit Python at large. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 331, recorded August 25th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by us over at Talk Python Training. And the transcripts are brought to you by Assembly AI. Lucas, welcome back to Talk Python to Me.
6: Very happy to be here. This is the first time you can see me as well, I guess. So it's <laughs> kind, of, kind of a new thing for me. So first times, first times. You've been on the show three times
5: before. Yep. You uh, talked about, let's see, the very first one was gradual typing of production applications. And that was applying type hints and mypy over on Instagram, which was fantastic work. And I loved what you're doing there. Then we talked about the Python Language Summit. You gave us a wrap-up on that or a rundown on that for 2018. And then diving into C Python 3.8 and beyond. So here we are
6: again. Thanks for being back. Yeah, happy to be here. Like 3.8 is now already an old release, right? It's already in security-only fixes mode. So it was new at the time. Yeah, I think when we were talking about it, it's like, what are the new exciting features? I guess, you know, while we're on that topic, just
5: real quickly is, you know, what are the new features that you're excited about now, either 3.9, 3.10, or 3.11? Like, what's out now, what's just about out, and what's coming soon?
6: There's quite many. The one that I'm kind of living with the most right now is actually kind of just better error messages. So this is kind of like a trend that is still kind of happening, right? So there's further changes for 3.11 later, which is already like the main branch right now of development, right? So 3.10 is already in release candidate mode. So... Like we're going to get the second release candidate pretty soon. And then, you know, the final release. So all new features now go to 3.11 already. But the better error messages like really kind of, they're kind of this icing on the cake that make, you know, stuff much nicer for you. There's a bunch of typing changes that I was really looking forward to, like back in PEP 484 times, like when we first, you know, added string and well, annotations to Python I always kind of wanted them to feel more native inside, you know, your code. And now with Python 3.10, you can use, I guess it's PEP 604, like union types, you know, like that kind yeah. of are not so verbose. They use the pipe operator instead of spelling out, you know, capital case union of whatever, which is kind of more compact and also more readable through this, right? Because like now. Types that aren't super trivial don't look as scary anymore, right? Because like you kind of don't have to have the square brackets so much and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, for people who haven't explored this
5: deeply, there previously was basically a parallel, a mirrored hierarchy of types that weren't actually the types, but they describe the types. So from typing import capital L list, that would say you're returning a lowercase l list yep. as your type. And then it got even more interesting when you have like optional, right? I have an optional user that's returned from this query. Now you can just do things like
6: user pipe none and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So this was fun, but also like what I really kind of like to use is that like the lowercase types just feel more natural, right? So, you yeah. know, kind of just putting dicts and lists and whatever, like just straight out of built-ins and just applying generics to them just kind of looks right, like feels yeah. right. So Yeah, it always felt weird. Like, why do I have to do an import just to talk about this thing I'm already using, right? Yeah, because like if you actually look at how the feature was enabled to allow lowercase list of string and whatnot, like this is now part of the interpreter, this was... Uh, Kind of changed like deeply in the C code of the interpreter Uh, back in 2014 when we first released PEP 484. The value of typing wasn't really so clear cut yet. It was a new idea. We wanted to have this out. We wanted to have people actually test it and say, you know, and is this something that Python could actually see value in? So it was a little too early to make you know drastic changes to the interpreter just because it would be handy to have for typing. Like, it's kind of, you know, icky in the sense that between here and there, we clearly have this transition period where typing just becomes more natural to use and, you know, more ergonomic. And and obviously the tooling like MyPy matures, but it's what you have to do if you're dealing with a language that is 30 years old, right? So we didn't have this clean room experience because the language was already successful. It was already out there. So yeah, like a bunch of new languages now have this comfort, like have this luxury of just being able to just, you know, can look at an empty page and just design from scratch. Like we had to evolve what we had.
5: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, Python's 30 years old, right? The yeah. look, language that gives me sort of, that comes to mind when you say that is Swift, right? Swift took a bunch of these ideas, like op, you have to explicitly say, here's a nullable reference type and whatnot. But like all of that stuff was done looking back at, Python, at C Sharp, at C++, at all these
6: languages that, you know, and then like sort of put together the pieces, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like Swift in particular, I kind of like, you know, kind of it fits my brain. I talk with Corey Benfield every now and again about it. Like he he's now working on it actually at Apple. So yeah, I, I do feel it's it's a good evolution of Objective-C since, you know, kind of it's it's where it all kind of, oh, yeah. you know, started from. It's
5: definitely an improvement. Yeah. I don't want to go too far down the rat hole, but I sure, do wish sure. it had something like a better standard library like Python has. I feel like the language is good, but then when I want to do stuff, I'm like, oh, it's, like, there's so much missing from like the foundation of it in terms of the functionality. But anyway, long story short, because it still depends on the whole um, Objective-C sort of like really funky class library stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'll get mail about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So
6: sorry, I super derailed you. What else is exciting that's coming in the near term? Of course, like the biggest kind of feature that was most controversial probably is the match statement, right? So pattern matching in Python, it is a huge feature. It kind of changes how, you know, some of the code that you're dealing with looks. And also it kind of introduces for the first time this concept of context-specific keywords, right? Like that's something that maybe not so many what's new in three Python, uh, Python 3.10 posts kind of touch on, but just notice that you can still use match and case as regular variable names. You can still name your functions that you can still use this as argument names and whatnot and whatnot. But when the Python grammar discovers when the parser sees that, oh, this is in a place where it fits a construct that looks like a match statement. It'll deal with that and it'll parse that successfully. That is what we could do having this new peg parser that it started in Python 3.9, like it was released then already, but without any new features, right? Like now in Python 3.10, we're getting the match statement. I'm still kind of, you know, to be honest with you, before this area where I can tell you that I have a lot of experience writing match statements. It's like super useful for me and whatnot. Like I've written a few of them where it actually made sense and made the code, well, I couldn't really say shorter because usually it actually doesn't, but much more readable because it's kind of flatter. It's it's easier to parse, like visually, I mean by a person but it's not something that I really use daily. So like whenever somebody is really worried about like, Hey, like what is Python becoming? It's such a complex feature. Like, you know, what about the kids think of the children? Like (laughs) I always tell them like, Hey, like how many descriptors did you implement in in your last week or month or year? Like probably not. True. And how how many meta classes? Exactly. So yeah, like, yeah, how many meta classes have you worked with? That's a good point. It's almost like another feature like this where sometimes it will make perfect sense but most often just like with assignment ex- assignment expressions like most often you won't see them. You won't be using those. Yeah.
5: Okay. Well, fantastic. You know, you're talking about the foundational stuff like the peg parser right? That's not a feature that a bunch of people are saying, you know, I can't wait for a better parser, right? But it's one of these enabling things. And I feel like this whole role that you're in is sort of in that same idea, right? The same vein that, that it might not be super public or generating a, a bunch of new features, but it might be making things a lot smoother for everyone who wants to come along and do those things. What
6: do you think? The way I look at it is that there's a lot of us on the core team and even more people around the core team who are kind of, well, we call them drive-by contributors, right? Like, you know, they would find an issue, just produce a bunch of pull requests and maybe then kind of disappear. Or maybe they're around, but like not producing more for us. And we are obviously very happy with any contribution. And the sad reality is that like we have more of those, then we can realistically review. Yeah. So the problem isn't even that, you know, we need more people to actually be able to, you know, actually produce value. We need people to evaluate the value that we're already getting from the community and from each other to be able to, you know, actually merge them into mainline and to see how the language evolves. Obviously, every year... You know, this changes over the years how Python is developed. Like we've going to have a bunch of people who are super invested and they're going to be spending crazy amounts of time, including on weekends and whatnot, like to work on Python, even for free. I know I did that for like, you know, a decade. So those contributions are super valued. But usually those really, those people change, right? Like, you know, you cannot really do this in a consistent manner day in, day out for a long period of time, you know, your right. life situation changes, you know, your know, your job changes or whatnot, and you know, like you stop contributing. And what happens to Python then? Well, we lose some value. Currently, we have over fourteen hundred open pull requests, and I've been on a mission to kind of bring that number down. Currently, as I'm looking at it, it's fourteen twenty one.
5: I was looking at this morning. Here, I put it up on the screen for people watching live, and wow, wow, wow. That yeah. is a lot of information coming in and not just the sheer number of open ones. But the thing that struck me is I'm reading down 26 minutes ago, an hour ago, two hours ago, three hours ago, three hours ago, four hours ago, five hours. Like that's hard to keep up no matter what, right?
6: Yeah. Some of those I already reviewed, like the faster implementation of GZIP decompress that you have, like somewhere on the screen, like a little lower than the first one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like this on lowest one at the moment. So, yeah. so the thing is like, there's so many of those that, you know, kind of somebody actually has to come in and, you know, day in, day out, like butts and seats, just review the value that people are already providing for you. Like this particular yeah. change actually extracted from an older rejected change, like is actually providing clear value, right? Like. Now we're going to have GZIP compress and decompress be faster, right? But it is actually not change that is obvious, right? Like you have eight files that are changed. You really need to see that, oh, there's a lot of code that changed. Some of it actually wasn't. It was just moved so that we could reuse it better. Some of it actually has subtle uh, subtle changes. So this isn't something that many volunteers will be willing to do on their free time because it's mostly kind of, well, it's work. It really is work. (laughs)
5: It's the janitorial typo, just keep it clean, keep it going. Yeah, yep, main, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So let's go ahead and actually introduce this main topic here, the, the big announcement for you. On your yeah. blog here, you have, I am the new C Python developer
6: in residence. Congratulations. Ah, thank you. I'm still very excited about this. Like back when we only had volunteers doing this and maybe while well, Guido being, you know, kind of tolerated as the BDFL <laughs> at Dropbox, because obviously he was being paid to actually move MyPy forward, right? That was mm-hmm. his team. But obviously he did a lot for Python as well. And that was kind of understood by Dropbox that it's fine. And many of us was were in the same situation. Like I was tolerated as a C Python core developer at Facebook uh, and some others were at their own respective companies. So I was super frustrated by this because, you know, there's tremendous value that we're giving to the entire community, including multi-billion dollar corporations. And we yes. all, only thought like, hey, like the expectations are high and we want to provide the best tooling that we can for the industry but it is kind of a hard sell you know when your kid wants to go out and and you're like oh no i'm fixing this bug but at the same time you're doing this for free so you're thinking you know like (laughs) where did i go wrong in life like you know my values are somewhere not where they're supposed to be so red hat actually hired victor stinner like full time to work on python but it was still red hat he's still an employee of a company that is for profit So now the CPython developer in residence is different, right? It is sponsored by a PSF sponsor in this particular case by Google. Like Google as a company reached out to the PSF specifically to sponsor stuff like this. And that is amazing. I am very happy that they did because I really believe that this is something that might you know, kind of alter how we think about maintenance of community-driven projects like Python.
5: Yeah, and thank you to Google for doing this. It's so easy for them to say, well, maybe we could just hire some core developers and they could work on speeding up the Google Cloud stuff for Python and we'll let them also contribute back, right? That would be the sort of natural historical way of doing something like that yes but here it's it's like no let's actually directly sort of effectively hire a person but put them in an independent role that just makes python better and that's interesting right
6: yeah like amazing thing about this is that you know while i do hope that some of the work that i already did was useful for google as well like there is no job description written by them and there are no like tasks that they're directly giving me, right? Like it's it's really independent in this sense. And this is what makes it super healthy and like, you know, kind of, I think, well, sustainable for the future that it is actually... Me being able to talk to the steering council, which I do regularly, and to the PSF about like, hey, what we actually, what do we actually need? And we don't have to take into consideration, you know, kind of direct value for our sponsors. Like we are providing indirect value, like, but, you know, we don't have a roadmap where there are certain milestones that we need to reach. Like it's it's not like that. So I'm very happy about this difference because we did have sponsors before that did have either uh, projects that they really wanted to move forward, right? You know, and we still have uh, have those. Like, so for example, packaging and whatnot, or events that happen, right? So Facebook sponsored, you know, core development spins, uh, sprints. Uh, so we had those at the campus two years in a row, and then Microsoft took over, and then we had Bloomberg, and then we had COVID, you know? So like those things do happen, and I'm very happy for those. But this is a kind of a game changer. Like we have not done... This way of sponsoring a project before, where we're actually thinking about the software world in Python Software Foundation, where we directly sponsor work on the code, on the source code.
5: Yeah. The PSF has, what, seven, eight, nine full-time employees, but you're the first employee who is in a sort of software developer role. I think the closest we had before was a project management role for... The new pip, is that
6: right? Yeah, so like we we have that, like there's also E who works on our infrastructure, right? So what is also important for uh Python and this is dealt uh dealt with by the PSF is to keep the website running and to keep PyPI running, right? Yeah, and so on. So obviously all of this requires constant supervision and it's also something that you can spend your life like working full-time on and this is what e is doing however that wasn't contributing to c python at the repository directly and this is the entire change
5: yeah that's fantastic uh quick shout out to just the two other visionary sponsors we got bloomberg and microsoft through azure so Uh i think that's awesome i think this whole visionary sponsor google was the first one in that category right Uh
6: Yes, that is a change in how the PSF was looking at sponsorship before. Like, I'm very happy to see that like this entire, you know, developer in residence position was something that I was pretty stressed by, you know, when I first like got, you know, to know that, oh, this is actually going to be happening because Mm -hmm. I do believe that my particular performance kind of will make or break future ideas on whether this should be extended to more people, right? Or just closed down altogether. So it's not only providing, you know, value to the project, it's literally providing kind of proof that this development model works. So yeah, there's certain responsibility around it. I think I already caught a rhythm that I can sustain. And I think, you know, kind of splits my own coding with actually uh, reviewing and accepting other contributions which are the bulk of what i'm doing because like you know otherwise if i just focused on coding all week i might maybe if i'm lucky and other people review my work make maybe five maybe six changes to cpython like we're doing careful reviews because like even simple changes might have actual far-reaching consequences but when i'm reviewing other changes we sometimes have like 50 or over 50 changes that I can actually merge into mainline. So I'm very happy about that. You know, like that, that is obviously a much better deal for everybody.
5: Yeah. It's one of these enabling roles, not just sort of heads down coding roles, which I think is the important thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Paul Everett out there in the live stream says you mentioned the stress from the responsibility agreed. It takes some
6: bravery to do it. Kudos. Oh, thank you. At the same time, I was literally giving talks before about, you know, yeah, we should do this. So, you know, like I kind of put <laughs> myself out there even before this this was a position. So at least applying because like, obviously it wasn't at all obvious to anybody like who is going to be chosen for this. I at this applying was, was sort of in the cards. Like I had to man up and do it, you know?
5: Yeah, that's cool. Let's sort of explore a bit your background, like. It's not just that you are a user of Python. I, I don't know, even a really good Python developer themselves might not be a good fit for this role because it really is like closely working with people contributing to the code base and the core developers and all that. So, you know, maybe give people a sense of some of the things that you did previously to this in the
6: C Python space. Like, for example, you created black. I think maybe people have heard of black. <laughs> yeah. If anything, this, this was actually probably um, something that made it harder for me to get this position because obviously everybody is scared. Like, Hey, are you going to reformat all of this down library now? Like, you know,
5: <laughs> Oh, you're bringing the black guy. He's going to totally format it different.
6: <laughs> uh, Yeah. The biggest PR ever. No, like, so uh, <laughs> j- joking aside, like I'm not new in the project and that was obviously important. It's kind of hard for me to, you know, kind of now enumerate the reasons why I was chosen. Like you know, mm-hmm. kind of, I can only tell you what I told the PSF when I applied, because that was actually like the only time in my life where I actually had to write like a proper cover letter and actually kind <laughs> of, you know, do some soul searching and say like, Hey, am I actually a good fit yeah. for this? Um, and, you know, what I think is my mission that. statement. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, pretty much. So, you know, kind of, I've been around for a while. I've done some changes big and small. There's a bunch of peps with my name on them. So I guess, you know, kind of. It's not just, you know, tiny typo fixes and and introducing new bugs. It's also uh, introducing PEPs. Some of them might be more clear-cut wins than others. Yeah, you you appear in a lot of the PEPs. You were the release manager as well, right? Yes, I still am for 3.9. 3.9 is now currently already pretty late in the game in the sense that we will be releasing Python 3.9.7. Just the next Monday, so probably okay. not when you know the listeners of the podcast are going to. Well, like they're probably going to see this already released. But like from now, like for the ones like watching the live stream, uh, yeah, next Monday is when we are going to release three nine seven. So that's already the seventh bug fix release of Python 3.9. There's going to be a bunch of more of those, and then it's going to graduate or retire into the mode where only security fixes are considered for inclusion. This is where yeah. Python 3.8 is already. I've been managing the releases of that. How long
5: do you remain the release manager until 3.9 is retired or does
6: it get handed off at some point? No, no, no. So like for uh, you become a release manager for the entirety of a life cycle of two releases, right? This was true for a long time, like... I didn't dig up like, you know, kind of prehistory, but since like the Python 3 releases, I looked at like, that was the case. Python 2.7, I think was, you know, Benjamin and 2.6. I'm not sure that it was him. Like it was probably Barry Warsaw. But the thing is like 2.7 was you know, the longest release managing job ever. So, you know, kind of you could just burn yourself out on that one release, so that's fine. For uh, for us currently, we're managing two releases. Like, so how long is that? Well, with the development of given Python version where 3.11 is already being developed right now, mm-hmm. it takes around a year and a half for it to actually, you know, get out there as the final release. We do have a cadence where we release new versions every year. But that's only because once one release becomes beta, we can already switch the branches and now new features go to a yet new version. So currently it's a little weird. I think that happened on your watch,
5: right? That happened on your watch, wasn't it 18 months before?
6: Uh, Yes. So 18 months of a cadence was never really a hard calendar event. Like it was more like, you know, a guideline. We're like, yeah, we're going for 18 months. Sometimes it was 19, sometimes it was 20. But it was problematic for many reasons. So yes, like one of the peps that I authored was a pep saying, hey, we should change the cadence of development to make it an annual release cadence, which helps with downstream distributors like Linux distributions. And for for many other reasons, like, you know, for us, like that's in the pep. But yeah, like to just close on your original question, like, it takes around eight years from starting the job to like actually saying, "Oh, now I'm a retired release manager." So it's it's a long term contribution. That's a big commitment, isn't it?
5: Yeah. It is. Wow, that's amazing. Well, thank you for that. That's that's wild. So when you I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but on your original blog post announcing it, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes, of course, you talked about what can one person do as the developer in residence. And you called out a bunch of specific things here about how you can basically be a multiplier effect for people who want to contribute, who are not
6: core developers. You want to maybe like, would of give us the rundown on those things? Sure. So like the blog post, I'm still happy with it because like it kind of shows that it, it wasn't just winging it. Like I actually thought it through, but like, you know, kind of it lists a bunch of things that are ideas and then you actually start doing the job and some things become clear, right? So like all of the things I wrote are true, but what I, for example, didn't quite like word out in the blog post that I realized is important is that very many changes that I touch are kind of. there, you know, where I cannot just merge them as is, but really what I need changing is the doc string is just bad or the comment is misleading or whatever. So like, you know, a bunch of simple things that, you know, kind of, it feels just wrong to just review the change and say, Hey, like I request you do this small knit, you know, because I cannot merge it as is.
5: Yeah, you got to do the line break because this code is 90 lines and 90 characters long. Like you could
6: just break that line and then commit it, right? Yeah, so this is what I do actually very often right now. I just kind of take the change locally, you know, run the tests that, you know, kind of are important for this particular case. I do the change that I would ask for just myself, you know, like without actually looping in the original author most people actually leave that tick on their github pull requests making my job easier like so like yeah thanks for that and then you know kind of yeah maybe they forgot Mm -hmm. i just did a pr last night and i allow maintainer to edit the pr yes yes this is something i'm using very often right now like because like if you forgot to for example put a news entry for this and you've never done this before like yes there's a bot for this that Mariada wrote so like you know You just need to go and read how to do this and you will be able to do this from now on. But, you know, when will you do that? Maybe tomorrow, maybe in a week, maybe you're just going to leave this pull request, you know, to go stale. So instead, I just go and do this for you. This kind of level of multiplication really, I think, is kind of, you know, closing the gap, like because very many changes and sometimes it's just sad to look at, you know, like you have a change from 2017 that is clearly great, you know, like clearly valuable and then there was some knit that, you know, prevented it from being merged. And now it's 2021 and it no longer merges because there's conflicts right. with other unrelated things. It's so out of date. It's no longer just a knit. It's now like a big now project it's, to rethink yes, it. Yeah. Now it's hard to merge. And obviously not just that, maybe that original person who created the change and worked hard on it now is discouraged or moved on to other projects Because, you know, like it wasn't merged for four years. So this is what we want to change, right? We want to make the, not just the first time contributor, but like any contributor, well, life or experience like much better by at least providing feedback. Like not all feedback will be positive. Like this is already a mature project and sometimes very good and easy ideas actually aren't if you look close enough, you know, like... This is the frustrating part where even kind of clear-cut advantages might be disadvantages for a different group of users, right? Or on a different platform that you're not a user of, but, you know, we have to actually look at the big picture. But at least you're going to know from somebody like me that, hey, like, this is good, but we cannot take it because of X, Y, Z, you know? It's super frustrating
5: or disappointing to put work into doing a PR, submitting the PR, and then... It's not that it was rejected. It gets no response. And that's, I think, really frustrating. You're like, I spent a whole day because I was thinking this would make this thing I almost works for me, make it perfect for me. And here's the thing. And the answer could be no, it's not the right direction. But no answer at all is just like, ah, I'm not sure I want to do this again. You know, Yeah. related to that sort of, Rodrigo out in the live stream has a pretty good question, I think. Let me throw that out to you. And you know, what are some of the advice to potential
6: future drive-by contributors? How could they make your life easier? Well, like in the future, we'll move to GitHub issues. So a bunch of this will become easier for the contributors themselves. But currently that we still have bugs, python.org, there is a required step pretty much for anything that isn't a trivial typo, which is you need to have a bugspython.org account where we know that you signed the CLA, right? So the contributor license agreement saying I release my you know code under Apache, for example, right? So that we can actually use it and, and merge it and it's fine. So this is something that, you know, kind of is the important original step. And once you're already on bugspython.org and your change is not trivial. Please click that, you know, open new issue button and write what you're doing and why. Maybe it's already there. Maybe you already know that you're fixing a particular thing that was already reported by somebody else. But if not, like spend this five to 10 minutes describing what is happening and why you want the change applied. Very many changes simply do the thing that they want to do. Many of them don't even write in the pull request name, like what they're doing. It's simply the original GitHub update file which really, you know, is a puzzle now for anybody else because we don't really know why why this thing was touched in the first place. So essentially just describe like where you're coming from, like what is this change doing? Like that is already, that's already great. That, that already kind of gives context to us. Would you suggest that people create
5: an issue and get a little bit of buy-in from you all before actually doing the change and the PR? Like would it make sense to say I'm, considering this, I'm happy to do
6: a PR. Here's the, the plan. Would you accept this if I did it? Depends. Right. Okay. Because like that is the worst centrist bleak answer that anybody can give depends. Right. Mm. When you're doing bug fixes, you should just go ahead and, you know, do your best and meet yeah. the bug fix. Like here's the failing test. Here's the fix. Yeah. Yeah, yep. but if you are saying, hey, this library should have this new function that I am using in my own project, so I just want to put it in, say, functools or whatever. So before actually going ahead and creating that pull request, like it probably might sense to discuss it with us because a growing standard library, well, isn't so clear-cut a value as you think, right? Because it's a maintenance burden. Yeah, absolutely. And more importantly, you know, now it has to consider all the usage groups that the original author might not care about. But we ne- we have to. We necessarily have to. So yeah, for features, definitely file an issue. You know, Describe your problem. You might actually, if that makes it easier for everybody to discuss, just submit a pull request saying, hey, this is the feature if, if you want to talk about it. So we actually talk about something concrete instead of an idea. But if you, for example, say that, hey, we need to rewrite multiprocessing so it does this other thing, instead of creating a multi-file gigantic pull request, like let's discuss first.
5: Talk Python me is partially supported by our training courses. At Talk Python, we run a bunch of web apps and web APIs. These power the training courses as well as the mobile apps on iOS and Android. If I had to build these from scratch again today, there's no doubt which framework I would use. It's FastAPI. To me, FastAPI is the embodiment of modern Python and modern APIs. You have beautiful usage of type annotations, you have model binding and validation with Pydantic, and you have first class, async, and await support. If you're building or rebuilding a web app, you owe it to yourself to check out our course Modern APIs with FastAPI over at TalkPython Training. It'll take you from curious to production with FastAPI. To learn more and get started today, just visit TalkPython.fm slash FastAPI or email us at sales at TalkPython.fm. Another question out there I think is good from Paul is your PR review of velocity. Do you expect it to go up as you get better and maybe automate or go down as you hit the harder PRs? Hard to say. It's like clearing
6: out your inbox a little bit, right? Like some of them are yeah, yeah, yeah. Them like, oh, that's a whole day. Oh, no. Essentially, <laughs> kind of, it is not very easy to kind of, you know, foresee what's going to happen a given week. But one thing for now has been constant, like, you know... I need to get the number of pull requests down, like below the number that we have right now, because like there's there's going to be some that are on page like 35 of the, you know, open pull requests page. So I will probably never get to them otherwise. So I need to bring the number down. And so far, just by myself, I was unable to do it. Like just, I cannot do it. Like I had one week where I really said like, hey, just, you know, uh, 40 hour work week be damned! Like I need to see <laughs> if I can really bring this number down, you know, and I almost merged a hundred, you know, so that was not something I can do every week. And no. I still didn't meet the, you know, the goal because I did leave the account below 1400 when I went to sleep and I, you know, woke up the next day and it was already <laughs> over. You know? Yeah, we
5: saw the rate of incoming ones. That's a lot.
6: Yes. So I'm doing around 50 ish a week right now. And, you know, kind of it it sounds super high, but, you know, some of them are backports to branches that we maintain. I list those because some of those backports aren't trivial, right? Like they will conflict because, you know, the files changed in between or they require some push, you know, from a person because the bot didn't do what it's supposed to do. So, you know, it's also work. But 50 isn't really, you know, kind of me kind of flexing. I can do so many changes. It's really the rate of change that you can see. So there are enough new changes, right? That I guess I can always forever just stay on page one and just deal with those. But that would feel unfair, right? you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, kind of that is some reversal of priorities where the last that comes in. Yeah. You almost need to go yeah. to the last page and work your exactly. way Exactly. So, so sometimes I would look at the older ones, you know, g- basically just asking a uh, interesting query to the search, uh, you know, pull request search on GitHub and see what's there for, for example, this file or, you know, what's already approved and that I can, you know, kind of maybe push over the line and so on. So there's going to be some balance there. I don't expect to go any faster than I currently am because I cannot really automate much there. Like, there might be some instances where if we analyze the pull requests better, we find that, oh, there's an entire genre of pull requests that we can just bulk close. But I kind of really, you know, kind okay, of yeah. now like put this on the report. Like, it's like, oh, I, I closed 1,500 pull requests. I'm so great. Now, like the ones that I put on the weekly report are all that I, like with my own eyes, look at and review. So I don't see how automation can really help me, you know, do do that faster. Uh, Like we need to be careful, right? Like it's still a language used, you know, for some important stuff and, you know, in our industry and beyond. So, you know, kind of a high rate of change sounds nice, but it also, you know, is risky, right? If you don't do it responsibly. So I think that the 50-ish number that I'm currently at, like, Is enough that I don't feel like, you know, I could be doing more. It's around what I can reasonably, with a clear mind, like review day in, day day out. And I still have some time to actually code, which is also fun because now you're contributing something of your own. But yeah, like, I don't think I can get to a hundred every week, like, regardless of the automation I can come up
5: with. Yeah. And maybe they get harder. (laughs) Oh yeah, they might. (laughs) Because you could go, all right, this one, I can quickly close this. I can quickly close this. But as you sort of cycle, iterate over that list, like you get stuck more with the hard ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned the weekly report. You're doing a weekly report that's just out in public. So for example, I'll link in the show notes to your weekly report for July 26th to August 1st, Was this like your second or third week, something like that? Yeah. So if people want to keep up with what you're doing, it's it's right out there, isn't it? It
6: would be out there anyway, right? Because like, even if you don't look at the reports that I'm writing, like you can still go to my profile on GitHub and just see like what the stream says there. And if it doesn't say anything, like, you know, that's kind of worrying. It's like, hey, is this guy even working? What is he doing?
5: <laughs> so check your Instagram, see if you're on the beach, yeah, just hanging exactly. out. And
6: I was actually last, just last week. Yes. Nice. So the weekly reports are kind of, you know, thought of by me personally, since like, the PSF wants me to blog about what I'm doing, but not at this cadence, right? But I personally just want to kind of tell you what I'm working on, because ultimately what I'm doing is work on an open source project for the community, like literally hired by the Python Software Foundation. So there is no agenda that is personal, like, you know, to me or driven by some corporation. Like I'm literally maintaining this for you. So Like, why not just let you in on what I've spent my time on? Most of those I expect are going to be pretty boring after a while because like a big part of it, like at the bottom is always just a list of PR so we can actually click through and see like, oh, what did did I do there? But, you know, I always try to like keep it interesting by, you know, kind of finding some highlights that, you know, I found particularly interesting a given week.
5: Yeah, I think this is really valuable. It will help people a lot to sort of see what the role is doing. So originally this role was based on Django's fellowship program, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's really cool. So you're able to, Django had this idea of bringing on people to help deal with the lower, not lower level, the the more maintenance oriented stuff, right? Like exactly what we've been talking about. And I know one of the things you talked about somewhere in one of your articles, I can't remember which, was basically you're very excited about this role, but you're also a little nervous because you want to make sure that you're the first one doing it and you want to make sure that it is going strong for the next year and the year after. And whoever comes along, you want, this is a good thing and you want to keep going, right? So that's a little bit, oh, yeah, you're kind yeah, of breaking like, the
6: ground there, right? Yes. So this is important for many reasons, obviously, right? Because like, you know, we can go ahead and talk about like how this can transform Python if there's enough people doing this full time and whatnot. And, yeah. and this is all true, but you know, there are also kind of more like down to earth reasons why I would like more people to be able to experience work as I am right now, because it's just a wonderful way to work. Not only am I working on something that was my hobby for like a decade now, so I can just day in, day out, just kind of, you know, I feel like I'm just kind of just doing the hobby right now. So it's amazing. But also, and this is something that, you know, like kudos to Google, like, the sponsorship level for this is bay area level of salary for a software developer so like it doesn't really matter that i'm here in poland you know kind of where very many companies would apply some location specific salaries to a position and now like this is literally kind of the like well like i don't want to say premium grade but like industry strong salary here it's not like you had to go and say i'm I'm really going to take a hit but i really want to do this so let's just do it right it's a it's a proper not job. at all not yeah. at all which is exactly why i think you know it's both important to the project but also important to all those people who are already contributing they're already providing value and now if they got paid like you know actual industry strong rates for their work like This has the well kind of opportunity or this has this enough value that it can change a person's life, right? Like some of our contributors are not in the US or in countries that are like, you know, I don't know, Eastern Europe or East Asia or wherever else. And there, like this kind of amount of money, like might actually make or break, you know, kind of somebody's, well, entire livelihood. So it's amazing that this opportunity exists. uh, exists. At the same time, like for now, like you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Like this is a contract for one person for twelve months, right? It might not get reviewed, uh, renewed. Like we might not get a sponsorship for next year, so the PSF might actually have to be on the lookout for more sponsors later, or maybe for a new developer if they just don't feel like uh, you know kind of the current one is doing the job like well enough. So like you know all those things might still be in motion. So I myself don't really kind of you know already put this in the bank. They're like, hey, like I'll be doing this now for like however long. No, like now I'm really spending this first year of really producing like the most I can I reasonably can, right? because it might just be a 12 month gig that I will be having like fond memories of you know in a decade. Or maybe it's a start of something much bigger. So why not take the chance and just, just, you know, try your best?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So let's dream just a little bit and then maybe I'll put a call out to it. Would it make sense? Would you want, could you do more with like a team of people if there were five developers in residence? So would the PR look like 20 open ones, the oldest one a month open, things like that? Like, would that be good? Would you want to see
6: that? Having five people available for work like this would entirely change how I'm approaching this. Because currently, like, I don't really have much in terms of coordination with others, right? Like, I just look at whatever current work is happening and try to help out there. But if you had five people, you could actually hit this problem head on. Like, you know, we have 1400 open pull requests. Like, it's not a question now, like, if we get them down to zero, but like, but when, right? Now we actually can plan to do this you know like methodically and a lot of bigger style things that we always wanted to have in python we could now just plan to implement ourselves now yeah. if i'm just the only person doing this it feels irresponsible to just you know hide somewhere you know in a basement in poland and start churning out my favorite feature <laughs> right like that's not what this world yeah. is about but if you have five people you can reasonably expect that some of them might actually work full-time providing new features or finishing unfinished ones which there are plenty of for inclusion in a future version of uh, of python
5: it could be somebody says i'm the one who just goes to all the bug prs and just checks those and, may- and there could be somebody working on performance and like you could specialize in things like that even.
6: Oh well, you specialize but I really kind of think that if all of them are developers in residence it would be great if they like kind of had like this on-call rotation for doing things as I'm doing now, so just responding to the well external community, right? Because like the important thing that I wrote in the original post and I still believe in is, you know, like the drive-by contributor experience is extremely important, right? So, like, we would always have to have somebody doing this. But at the same time, nobody really wants to do only that. Like, everybody has to provide, well, wants to provide value of their own so that they can, you know, touch it and say, like, ah, I did this, this is good. Yeah. So, yeah, I already have a bit of this, you know, like... Not as clear-cut, not sponsored by the PSF directly, but Pablo, um, the release manager of Python 3.10 and 3.11, is both sponsored by Bloomberg to work half time on Python performance and also by him doing the release managing job for Python 3.10 and 3.11. He coordinates with me very often right now, especially that now we are in the release candidate stage of Python 3.10.0. And the greatest thing about this is that he's in London, right? So yeah, maybe maybe far if I were to walk to him, but in terms of time zones, that's amazing. Like he's just one hour away. So, you know, we mostly have very synchronized work days. So I would talk to him like essentially every day. And that is also something that I missed doing remote work before, because, you know, kind of if you are working for a company that is in the Bay Area and you're the only Mm. one in your time zone, it kind of gets lonely, you know? having yeah. more people around that now I have. Like Pablo, I have Victor, other uh, Serhii, Storchaka. And most of our communication is async, right? So it's not like everybody's talking when I'm not around. Like everything is happen on the, uh, happening on the mailing list anyway. So yeah. it feels like I'm much more integrated into the team compared to my previous stints at you know doing remote work. So I enjoy this a lot.
5: So it sounds like it would make a big effect That's fantastic. We look at that list of the sponsors, the visionary sponsors, and there's three companies doing really good stuff. But you gave a implicit sort of call out to this. And I've said it plenty of times. There are many companies out there who their entire core of their business is built upon Python, and they make billions of dollars. Shouldn't they consider contributing something to build that foundation a little bit stronger, right? Like, Maybe make Python I think a little many faster are or their developers yeah. uh, go a little, you know, more efficient or whatever.
6: Yes. So like the good thing about this is that, you know, we, we always can use more money. So obviously we need more sponsors. Many of the companies are trying. Simply the thing that they need is, you know, some sort of like plan or, well, not, not like a legal contract, but at least some sort of understanding what the money is going to go oh, right. for. What do they
5: get out of it, right? Because yes, exactly. in their balance sheets, they have expenses. Mm-hmm. and they have revenue, they don't usually have charity, <laughs> right? It's, it's yeah. tr-
6: tricky for that, to for them to make it fit. I think it's it's kind of, you know, now with the developer in residence position, this kind of changes the game because you're no longer just sponsoring the Python Social Foundation and kind of, you know, yeah, you, you might have expectations, but maybe that will go for PyCon. Maybe that will go for sponsoring of events or minority groups or whatever else. Like if your company really is interested in providing, you know, like support for, to the core development, like, now you can. And I think, like, well, hopefully, like, that is my hope. Like, we're going to see more sponsors of that kind of... Yeah,
5: absolutely. People who are actually interested can go to python.org slash sponsor application. Mm-hmm. And it shows you what the tiers are, what they cost, what you get. You get a lot of inside access and a lot of um, visibility into Python at the visionary level that otherwise you wouldn't get. So there's, there's something to be said for that. People should check that out, right? You get to yep, meet absolutely. with the PSF board. A lot of cool stuff there. Workshops, job fairs. I, I think there's a lot of things on here that could go down as this is a legit value. Get to meet with the Python Steering Council, the Sprint Recognition, and so on. So I just want to encourage companies out there. Like, We don't need tons of them. If we had for others, right? You said that would make a huge
6: difference, right? Absolutely. And also kind of like, let's be clear, right? Like, you know, kind of if a sponsor of a developer in the residence job, like that came in with like a laundry list of like, this is the things that I want you to do. Like, we'd probably have to kind of, you know, come to an understanding that this is not what this is about. But if people who happen to be employees of a company come in with changes that make sense and actually provide value for us, and now we have people to do full-time code review and inclusion of those changes, it's more likely that things that you care about are going to be included, right? So you can be ethical and impartial to, you know, kind of, well, forces of, you know, money flowing into your account. Like, and also provide value to the sponsor. It's not a zero-sum game. Like, you know, let that be clear and explicitly said, because I feel like this is also important to know that if, for example, there is a company that really, really focuses on an operating system, like, I don't know, maybe they're running everything on Windows or Mac OS, right? Like, you know, and now they're like, hey, like we really need somebody to make async AsyncIO work better on Windows or we need to fix this fork problem on macOS once and for all or whatnot. Like, you know, if they provide, you know, some changes and now there's people to do the review, more likely than not, we're going to have better support for Windows and macOS. Like, you know, everybody right. wins.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Another benefit I'll throw out there just thinking about this is a lot of companies have like continuing education programs and credits like, hey, you have a bachelor's degree. Do you want a master's degree? If you're willing to go to school outside of work, we'll provide that for you. And the reason is now you have people who work for you that have master's degrees and not bachelor degrees, right? Uh So this could be a similar thing. Like, hey, we want to provide a position for people to come work as the DIR or part of the DIR. And then maybe they come back and work for us afterwards, but they would be so much more knowledgeable about Python having spent a year in this role. There's a lot of benefits like this.
6: You know, you won't believe this, but like, obviously the project is a million lines of code, right? Like half of it is in C, half of it is in Python. So I don't know about most of it, right? Like I've seen much of it, but like I probably don't have expertise (laughs) in most of it, but nobody cares when they submit pull requests. So then I look at them. (laughs) So for many of them, it's my first actual stint at, you know, like touching a part of Python that I might know as a user, you know, from but, the but outside often, right yes yeah. but then then looking at like how does dunder main actually work in python is this special module that you know like your execution starts with like how does this actually work so you go and see and you know, actually kind of dig and you understand like ah oh, okay like i understand this because you have to take into account you know starting your python interpreter like you know with i don't know code from the standard input, or maybe somebody is starting a REPL, or maybe you're from a file or maybe it's a zip file or whatever. So now I know more than I just knew like two weeks back about Thunder Main. So very true, like, you know, you bring somebody in who is motivated and maybe knows a bit about, you know, what CPython already is built on, but necessarily you're going to get experience in parts that you would otherwise not touch. Right? Because yeah. now you're reviewing the bulk of uh, pull requests that are coming in, not the ones that you would write yourself.
5: Yep. Absolutely. I remember one listener sent me a message and said, I was really surprised to hear you say there is like this whole section of the standard library you didn't know about. And like, that describes a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there. Right. You might just barely touch it. You might have no use for it. There's a lot you would. This would force you to just give that depth. It's big. It's big. Absolutely. So Rodrigo asked previously about what drive-by contributors can do to help you. What can, you know, this is speaking to a smaller audience, of course, but still, I think it's relevant. What can the core developers and the steering council and the people on the inside do to help you be more successful and efficient?
6: Most of them know me. So the most important thing for them, and I really mean it, is like, Tell me what I should be rather doing. If you feel like there's something else I should be touching on, or if I did something that you don't like for any reason, just write me, just tell me, right? Like, because like, it's different from the external contributors. Most of the core devs I know one way or another, so we can be direct with one another. And I think like the make or break of this position is for me to provide value for both groups. So if there's anything that a particular person needs or wants, or even feels like, hey, you're know, you focusing too much on this thing, or, oh, have you looked at this? Like, this is not something you've touched yet, but this is extremely important. Just let me know. So communication is key for us right now. And another thing that I kind of still don't quite know how to tackle is that, I don't feel comfortable just now, like assigning a bunch of things to volunteers. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like now there is a bunch of pull requests where they're fixing something that actually broke because of a change that some core developer did five years back. So, of course, they have the best context on this change. But I feel kind of icky just, you know, going and doing this 10 times a day, you know, because it really feels like. Now you're being this manager of Python telling people, hey, go fix your shit. Like, no, that is not what I mean. It's like, (laughs) as I said, the project is huge. And, you know, very often it is really a bunch of people, like a low number of people who have the best context on a given part of Python. So, Yeah. yeah, like if I do this too much, again, like, you know, tell me. If I'm not doing this and instead going ahead and doing changes, you know, that you don't like in your particular favorite piece of Python, also let me know. Like, this is still something I'm pretty new at. Like, I'm just going to, like, issue my second invoice, like, next week. I'm pretty excited about that. But, you know, like, it's still a new thing for me. So I guess, you know, for the core devs, yeah, let's talk. Like, whenever something is clearly, well, improvable, if that's a word, like, let me know. (laughs)
5: Yeah, absolutely. How much input into this role did the Steering Council have and how much did Guido have? Or was this a PSF plus
6: Google sort of thing? So I actually spoke with nobody from Google. So directly, I don't know the people behind this position like for, on their side. I know a bunch of core devs who happen to work at Google and they're very supportive of the position. So, So that's the extent of it. The Steering Council meets with me every second week. So it's mostly kind of me talking, hey, this is what I spend my time on. You know, they ask me like, how can we improve your output or whatever? Like, you know, or just they will, would just tell me about things that, you know, they find interesting or important that I might look at, but it it doesn't feel like they're really kind of going and telling me what I should be doing. Like, you know, point blank. They're just having like suggestions on and how this role should be moving. So this is kind of, this is a short well, 20, 30 minute meeting every two weeks. So kind of high level. I do have one just like it with Eva from the PSF and E. So it's it's really, you know, kind of the Python Software foundation internally also needs to communicate because they have all the keys to say, being able to restart a bot. Right. Or, yeah. to you know, kind of make changes on a given server or maybe change some workflow on GitHub that affects everybody and so on and so on. So we just also meet every second week to make sure everybody's on the same page. And also there's some very low level stuff, like, for example, figuring out like, hey, what calendar am I working on? Like, is Labor Day a day off for me or <laughs> is some other holiday that is here in Poland, but not in the US a day, a day off for me? or don't I get any day off at all and I work on Christmas <laughs> day? I don't know. So all exactly. of those, all of those things, you know, have to be actually discussed with the PSF directly. Yeah. And Cordevs, like, you know, kind of, we do talk a lot and Guido in particular was very supportive of me starting this role. So I'm very grateful for this because it's kind of like, you know, kind of just getting, getting a little bit of, you know, like an email, just a bunch of sentences, just actually kind of saying like, Hey, I believe this is a great decision. You're going to do great. Like, okay, I don't know. Like, I still feel like I'm a beginner in a lot of this. It's really reassuring and kind of yeah. you know, lifts your spirit. So, so yeah. Like, I guess we are in constant contact using super old ways like email and discourse to an extent, and now like VCs. So yeah, like we're doing Google Meets and Zooms with others. They actually, we have too many well, communication methods right now. So like me talking with core devs, I'm on IRC right now so that others can actually reach me as well. Others would talk to me through WhatsApp and whatnot. Like I have like 10 chat, uh, like message apps right now open just to be able to talk to everybody I need to talk to. So that needs fixing, but I don't know who is supposed to do that. Yeah,
5: I don't either. It's a growing problem, not a shrinking one. But it sounds like you're doing a good job. Even uh, Rodrigo out there in the live stream says, listen to this hypes me up to go and contribute to Python. So hopefully that sentiment is multiplied across all the people who are contributing work that, you know, it'll, it'll get more cool. attention sooner. Or so well done. Absolutely. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're about out of time to talk about the new role. So let me ask you the two final questions, which I've asked you before, but it's been a while since you were on the show. So time for an update. Uh, If you're going to do some Python, you know, you always run across different external packages, things on PyPI and whatnot. Have you
6: found one that you're just like, wow, this thing is amazing. We should talk about it, get more awareness of it. It's already growing. So I'm not going to tell anything that is like now like extremely, you know, novel, but I'm extremely digging rich, right? Like the uh, kind of text formatting, like library for CLIs, like anything that we write, like would use their progress bars and, you know, a bunch of other stuff that's there for column formatting and whatnot. Like I find it very approachable and the results are like, yeah, this is a console. This is a text console, just to be (laughs) clear, right? Like it just looks fantastic. And the code for it is very nice. Like it's it's, uh, very declarative. So Rich, I like a lot. And Will, the author of it, is now working on a text UI library that is much more Pythonic than the previous propositions that we had, say, like, you know... Uh, curses or eurowed. So yeah, like I'm hyped for that as well. It's called textual. Yeah, textual looks really interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. So those would be my easy propositions for the day in terms of third party packages.
5: Cool. The one I actually thought of Rich earlier when you talked about the better error messages, there's a cool article called Fast API and rich tracebacks in development mm-hmm. that talks about how to take rich and then plug it in. So whenever there's a stack trace, you get like super colorized error messages and all sorts of cool stuff. And uh, yeah, pretty neat, <laughs> pretty neat. There, yeah, this, so. this
6: changes a lot, actually, because, you know, I find that, for example, between using GCC, right, the C compiler and using Clang, like just the fact that it colors my, you know, errors, like, you know, tiny thing, but it makes Clang just feel nicer to me because it just values my time. It just makes me, makes it easier for me to read the relevant parts of the message So this sort of thing, like might just feel like, ah, you know, this is not really that important in my app, but like, it might save you a lot of time later on when you're like actually debugging stack traces that you're looking at, like at 2am or whatnot. So I think this is extremely important, like not just because it's uh, aesthetically pleasing, which is important in itself, but also functionally, right? Like, you know, this is the reason we are using syntax highlighting, right? Because it actually lets you see more information at the same time, right? So Absolutely. Like Rich provides this in a very smart way, like to your application. So not just your Python stack traces, but whatever you're displaying, like might be like this. It will automatically format numbers. It will automatically highlight, you know, dates and files and and file paths and whatnot and whatnot. So tremendous value added. Yep. Tables,
5: all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. It's definitely getting a lot of love out there. And then if you're going to write some Python code,
6: what editor are you... Important these days i am deeply invested in vs code right now because it is in a very very peculiar position where it's actually very good for c python development like core development because it's both a good c editor with you know support for just jumping through definitions and whatnot and also like has a great python plugin right like you know pylance right so it's both a type checker and you know this language server that does a lot of, of help like for you specifically so it's just a good package all around, like, to just do uh, CPython core development. Is it my perfect editor? Well, almost. Like, if the Vim plugin for it was official, officially maintained, and a little more sturdy, like, I would be the happiest person there. But, well, clearly, this is super low-key feature. Like, it's not a very popular thing. Must not be, because otherwise, you know, like, looking at what Microsoft is now doing with GitHub and whatnot, like... That would have been implemented if more people asked for it. So I might be of a dying breed of Vim users. I don't know. (laughs) Still, like, gets the job done, like, with the current Vim uh, plugin and system, like, you know, with the window splits and whatnot. I'm very happy with it. And now seeing that my development environment can actually be run in a browser, like, What what else could you ask for? It's it's, it's pretty amazing.
5: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're doing your podcast live stream, recording from a browser, and you're editing in a browser. All right, Lucas. Well, it's been great to have you here. Final call to action. You know, people want to learn more about the DIR, maybe want to help you out or
6: consider sponsoring this in the future or more people. What do you say? First of all, if you are a Python user, like you are very, very welcome to bring issues to us when they happen, right? So or whether this is on bugspython.org, obviously a very good place so that your a report will historically you know, maintain there and we can have a discussion that is open and actually work towards a solution, but also in informal ways. You know, if you reach to us via RSC or ask stuff on the mailing lists or discourse, like we're very happy to hear your feedback. So you don't have to write code like on day one, don't worry. You might never write code for us to fix your problems. Just report them. It's great. If you have stuff that works very well for you, you might also spend a minute, you know, telling us because this is something that nobody gets enough, you know, in this industry. We only get bug reports, you know? <laughs> and yeah, like if you do want to contribute, there's many ways to do this. If you want to code, absolutely. Just don't think it's super, super trivial to get large changes into a 30 year old programming language. I could make an entire talk just about that.
5: Right. Every little change has huge implications for some small percentage of people, but there's millions. And so that's a lot.
6: Sometimes very surprising ones. Yes. But yes, absolutely. We need more people doing the work and there's plenty of it. So you might still have Tremendous impact for the world, you know, maybe your code is going to run on Mars. You don't, you never know.
5: Yeah. Even if you're just reviewing PRs and making the little tiny fixes or stuff like that, that could be a big contribution.
6: Totally. And finally, for the current sponsors, thank you. You make this possible. So like, really, thank you. And for people and companies considering sponsorship for next year, if there's anything that you're not seeing that you would like to see that would convince you that it's worth it, Also, let the PSF know, like we might adjust what we're doing so that you're more comfortable with uh, sponsoring because really like, you know, this is a very unique programming language in the sense that it is community driven and community owned. So yeah, please talk to us.
5: Yeah. Awesome.
6: Well, thanks so much for being here.
5: Catch you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Lucas Lange. It's been brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training, and the transcripts were brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit TalkPython.fm slash Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube.
4: Hey, if you've been a listener for a while, you'll know that as a company, SPI has been focusing on community quite a lot in the last year as one of our pillars of our business. It's hugely important to us. And that's why I'm so excited to announce our newest podcast, The Community Experience, that launches on Tuesday, August 31st. That's right, a new, whole, entirely new podcast all about community. Have you ever found yourself asking questions like, well, what makes a community flourish? How do we build vibrant, supportive communities online? Can brands and organizations facilitate authentic connection through community? If so, you're going to love the community experience. It was designed to explore all things community and go deeper with what it means to create and participate in a community, any community. Not only that, but we wanna help people design communities that thrive, whether it's a niche community based on fandom or tied to a personal brand or your business. So each week, join our hosts, Jillian Benbow and Tony Bacigalupo to learn practical strategies and insights from people on the cutting edge of community building, as well as peek behind the curtains into the inner workings of our own branded community, SPI Pro. It's gonna be so awesome. So we believe that community-driven content and commerce is changing the landscape of work and life, and we hope that you'll join us for the ride and embrace the experience The Community Experience Podcast will launch Tuesday, August 31st, and you won't want to miss it. Make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and again, we'll let you know when it comes out. Just want to let you know now because it's so exciting. Hope you love it. You know, just this morning, my son, Keone, he's 11 years old now. Uh, He stood up next to my wife, April, and literally they're almost the same height. It's a little scary, number one, because Keone was taller than I was at his age, and uh, it just makes you realize just how precious they are but how quickly life goes by. Um, You definitely wanna savor every moment uh, as much as possible, right? So on that note, it makes sense why people get life insurance, right? I've been thinking a lot about this, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder is 100% digital, no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for $3 million in coverage or less, you just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. And if you prefer to talk to a person, their team of licensed agents, they don't work on commission, so they'll help you and not upsell you, which is, you know, always the worry with some of these kinds of things. No hidden fees cancel at any time. Get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. And ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims and they're rated A and A plus by A M best. Finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash SPI today to see if you're instantly improved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R, life.com slash SPI, ladderlife.com slash SPI. Hey, have you tried live video yet? Well, if you haven't, don't leave because this is the episode you're going to want to listen to. And if you have tried live video, doesn't matter what platform, this is gonna be helpful for you as well. Because we're speaking with none other than Luria Petrucci, somebody who you may have seen before. If not, I'm happy to introduce her to you because she can be found at LivestreamingPros.com, and she has personally helped me with setting up my live streaming stuff from gear selection to strategies to how to be engaging on camera. And she's just such a wonderful personality, somebody I cannot wait for you to hear to hopefully inspire you to do more lives, whether you've done zero or several. I want you to consider going live more because it's the best way to engage with an audience. We're gonna talk about how to engage with an audience, how to go live, where to go live, all those kinds of things and more today in this episode of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Here we go.
0: Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later.
2: And now your host, he likes his food spicy,
1: but sometimes regrets it later,
4: Pat Flynn. What's up, Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 502 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. We're talking live video today, something that I've been doing a lot of, so much in fact, that when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, I went live every day for a whole year, 365 days straight. Big shout out to the Income Stream. If you were somebody who has come on the show and listened in and watched, it's just, been fascinating what that has done for the brand for the connections live streaming is such a wonderful tool that you can have especially if you're going live for pre-launching something especially if you're going live to pitch something especially if you're going live to just simply build a deeper relationship with your audience this is something you're going to want to learn how to do and there's no better person to help you figure out how to do this right than Luria Perucci from livestreamingpros.com here she is to help you get started we have some fun resources for you at the end that you could take home with you as well so stick around for that here she is Luria, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for being here today.
0: I'm so thrilled. I love hanging out with you, Pat.
4: (laughs) You know, we used to see each other quite a bit at conferences and it's been a while, so I'm excited we could chat today. And I do need to give you a big thank you because you were part of the start of my live streaming journey a number of years back and been, as you know, live streaming a lot since then. So thank you so much for the kick I needed.
0: I think a lot is putting it quite tamely. (laughs)
4: Okay. So I went every day for a whole year. That is more than a lot. It was a great experience though. And I have a lot to credit you for, for that. So thank you.
0: Uh, You're the one doing the work.
4: (laughs) But you set me up properly, which is exactly what we're going to do today for people who are listening. If you've ever thought about live streaming, or maybe you are live streaming already, we're going to help set you up so that you get the most out of it. So I'd love to just kind of take people along the ride, starting at the very beginning why live stream? Why not just shoot a video, edit it and put it out on YouTube or do a little store on Instagram? Like what's the real benefit of going live with an audience?
0: Connection, which we learned a lot about in 2020, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) So that is the real true benefit is the community that you can build and the connection that you can have with your audience that is so much deeper than a recorded video. That is not to say recorded video doesn't have its place. It absolutely has its place as does podcasting and blogging and all of the things, right? So it's not that you need to throw everything out to the wind and just do live streaming only. Like I would never say that, but you want to be intentional about the content that you're creating within the environment that you're creating it. Live streaming offers you the ability to answer questions for your community to get to know them. You see their names and comments, but what about actually getting to know something about them and having a conversation that creates loyalty, which then creates a long lasting, as you call it, super fan and That means that people will buy from you. You're not going live so that people will buy from you, but that is the end result. And they don't just buy from you. They desire to help you out. They desire to participate in the book that you just published or in the course that you're just launching or whatever it is. They are so loyal that, in my experience, they sometimes buy without knowing what they buy, (laughs) what they just bought.
4: It's true. It's so weird. <laughs> Isn't it? But it's awesome. That's really great. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. I mean, it takes me back to the first time I experienced live streaming. I remember, and it was from somebody who, not live streaming like watching a live thing happen on TV, but like a connection with a creator who I had been following. And it was Darren Rouse from problogger.net. And this was way back in the blog TV days, like before YouTube was even a live streaming platform or Twitch or anything. And it was super late at night, but because I knew he was gonna be live, I stayed up late because I wanted to hang out with him. And then during that time, he was fielding questions from people. And then I remember the specific moment where he called my name to answer my question My heart started beating really fast. I started getting sweaty palms. And I was just like in my home office. It really felt like a true connection, like you said. So I I do feel that. And, you know, whatever the end result might be, it's a transaction. Maybe it's a business transaction, a, a sale, or maybe it's a share. Maybe it's feedback, right? Like the thing they offer you is feedback, something honest that you really need to hear. And only a true fan would give you that. It's so important. So I think the why is there. But perhaps if even people know the why, there's a lot of things to be scared of. I know. Because I was scared. What are the common things that people are telling themselves that hold them back from actually just going live and broadcasting?
0: So I call it lamb. The Live Adrenaline Monster. So I have a little monster made up. He actually has a face that you can picture. And when you see him, he's actually not that scary. But Lamb is the monster in your brain telling you all the things that can go wrong. You're going to forget what you were going to say. You're going to screw it up. Nobody's going to show up. Wait, what if people show up? What are you going to do? The tech is going to fail. What happens if, what happens if not? All of these fears and these thoughts that are going through your brain before you hit go live and while you are live, that's lamb. And all you need to learn to do is to tame lamb. And the reality is in order for you to get comfortable with being on camera in live video, You must realize why you're doing it in the first place, right? And we go back to the why that community, that connection, the ability to help. You know, you mentioned, and I want to come back to a couple more tips, but like you mentioned, the process of feedback. And we've talked about this offline before the feedback that you can get actually tells you a lot about what to do in your business, what other content to create, and that you can't get from an email survey. I'm sorry. You can, but you can't. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's a different type of feedback. Once you think about like why you're doing this in the first place, then you need to understand that lamb is attacking because you're thinking about you, right? It's all about you. I I always like refer to as Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Right? Um, We all hate him. He's looking in the mirror. He's like, "Ooh, I'm beautiful. Like, look at me. He's thinking about himself. You need to be thinking about the viewer. You need to be thinking about helping that one person that you're there to help or impacting that person or those types of people. And when you start to turn it around from you to them That's when everything starts to loosen up a little bit. That's not going to maybe necessarily get you going live totally, but it is a good start. And I mean, I can dive deep into, you know, how to be more confident on camera if we want to go there, but that's the start of it. And then literally doing it over and over and over because your first live is like your first video, like your first podcast, like your first riding of the bike that is you're going to fail. You're going to, you're going to not fail, but you're going to make a mistake. You're going to stumble. You're going to be uncomfortable. And if you can get comfortable being uncomfortable, that's when you're going to, to be able to go live and kind of get used to that process.
4: That's really great. I love the idea of thinking about who this is for, but what do you say to those people who are like, okay, I get that, but guess what? Nobody's probably going to show up. I don't have a huge audience, so it doesn't matter who this is for because nobody's going to be there. How do we get over that hump, especially if you're just starting out? You know, I had the benefit of doing live when I already had a blog audience and an email list and I can let them know about it. But how do we get started when literally we don't have anybody who even knows we exist yet?
0: I want to tell you about Andy Smiles. She's a bookkeeper and she went live for the first time having no audience whatsoever. And I had told her, she was a student, and I told her, most likely you're not going to have anybody you know, showing up live. So what she did is she took a post-it. She covered up the area where the view count was going to be. And she didn't look at the comment section. She didn't look at the view count. She showed up 100% for whoever, whenever. And what happened was she delivered. She was punchy. She, she, she put her all into it. 24 hours later, somebody watched that replay. And she had a $3,000 contract immediately Wow! because they loved how she showed up on camera. And she wasn't worried about who was watching. She wasn't worried about any comments or anything like that. She just wanted to provide that value. And then that $3,000 contract very quickly turned into a snowball effect of referrals. And that $3,000 contract also turned into a bigger contract with that first individual. So it's okay to not have anybody watching because live is often about the replay. There are people watching on that replay. You're gonna send that out to multiple people as well after the fact. And the beauty of going live to zero or one, two people is that you get to actually go live and figure it out and get comfortable without any pressure because Pat has all the pressure in the world when he shows up live For the first time, right? And everybody's watching and like, this better be good.
4: (laughs) That's so true. Now that I think about it, I did put a lot of pressure on myself because I knew actually people were going to show up. So if you're starting out, you have the advantage of being able to almost like in a little Petri dish you know, have things maybe knock out of the way you wanted to and only having it be contained to just a few people. And plus, I'm imagining that with fewer people there, you'd be able to make a deeper connection with them because, right, with a larger audience, I can't, I mean, I can try to reply to everybody, but I can't ask back and kind of have a conversation as well as somebody who has a smaller audience.
0: Exactly. That was my next point. You hit it on the head. It's like, That is where you build your community is in the early days with just a few people watching. Those people will later become your biggest fans, like your hardcore, because they would have watched you grow and they will have become your moderators on your channel and part of your team. And they're going to be all in there for you because you're able to have that conversation. So those are some of the most important people that you can have.
4: That's so true. Okay, so I'm just going over like a lot of the objections I think the audience would have and also I would have, which is, okay, show up, great. But there are so many choices. I don't know even where to begin. There's Instagram Live, YouTube, Twitch. How do I know where to even begin? And I know what a lot of people do who are quite go-getters at this point go, okay, you know what? I'm gonna stream to all of them at the same time. I'm gonna use these tools that I find. I'm gonna be everywhere. That way I can throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. What should we do though?
0: Well, first you have to identify where is your audience. If you have an audience, and that can be a small audience of a handful of people, but where is your audience existing currently? That's your first place to start.
4: Or your target audience, right?
0: Exactly, yeah. And where are they hanging out? What what do you think that they want from you in that environment? You also have to realize that each platform is very different. And so you have a different language, different nuances of each platform. And so... You can absolutely simulcast to discover where your audience is. At first, that's a that's a possible strategy where you're like, I've done the research, I can't figure out where my audience is. I don't know what's right. You could simulcast to just discover what hits or where you're getting some traction. But then I would really like you to kind of focus, right? Um, Really focus on one to two platforms. That way you can build the community there. One of the biggest challenges with simulcasting is understanding that, There's a conversation happening on Facebook and there's a conversation happening on YouTube. And those two conversations, unless you put that comment up on screen manually, those two conversations are siloed. There are tools like with Restream Chat Overlay that you can actually put the whole community on both platforms onto your screen. But that comes with this whole other set of cons and risks of having your chat displayed on screen if somebody goes bad on you. (laughs) Right? There are a lot of nuances when it comes to live. And so I don't want to overcomplicate it. Just choose one to two platforms that you feel like your target audience is going to be or that you know, and super focus, like get really good at building that community in that environment.
4: Yeah, going all in on on fewer things will allow you to go bigger on those places, more bigger than you could be if you were sort of spread out. Uh, So I, I love that tip. Thank you. Okay, so... Now, maybe I found a platform or I know my audience is there and I could show up, but what do I even say? Like once Mm -hmm. I hit broadcast, I'm just going to be a deer in headlights. What is it just Q&A the whole time? And what if nobody's there? Or do I come with a topic? How do I know what to even talk about?
0: Well, don't do Q&A when you have zero viewers. The worst thing ever. (laughs) Q&A, like, like, hey, who has a question? And there is nobody watching to ask a question. So that's something to be cautious about. You want to do Q&A in two different ways. One, either you prepare a set of 10 questions that are commonly asked about your topic, or uh, you wait until you have an engaged audience. Look at what Pat did his year of broadcasting live every day. Every day was a topic. And every day you came prepared with basically something that they could take away, a short, Easy win. That is exactly what you want to do. It depends on the content that you're creating, but let's assume you're doing kind of educational content, then coming to the to the table with the topics, not a huge topic, like I wouldn't ever go live to talk about how to live stream and cover all of the possibilities in a single stream. No, we break that up into single topics so that the audience feels like they have a quick win. They can accomplish something out of that training and they can go take action. That's really where you want to focus. But you also might be stumbling with, I don't know what topics to actually create. And that's a big mental block for a lot of people that is really easy to overcome. If you turn off all distractions Take a pen and paper and write down everything you know about your topic, everything you love about your topic, everything you hate about your topic, everything that people ask you when you're talking to family or friends or online. Go into Facebook groups or Reddit threads. I'm not a Reddit person, so I don't know what they're called. Never
4: mind, but there's a lot of conversations happening there too.
0: Exactly. Go into those those different groups and communities and find out, don't pitch, don't talk necessarily, but look and see our what are people asking about within your topic that will give you a year's worth of content very easily when you get over the fact that your what people are the, the mindset block that people have is that they think they need to go deep but what you do need to do is actually be basic with your content right your free public content should be basic because that's the most number of people who are going to be attracted to that content. And then as you work them down your funnel, then you're going to get a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. So that's where I see the biggest mindset block is they think, oh, it's not, it's not good enough. It's not deep enough. I know this and it's so easy. Well, the audience doesn't know it.
4: That's so true. In fact, if it's too deep, sometimes it's way over people's heads and they leave.
0: Yeah, Totally.
4: And the benefit of it is if they know it already, well, then it confirms that they're in the right spot and then they're at the same level and then they can even help others who might be in need too and they, ha- they have something to say. That's another benefit of live that I've noticed is you know, the creator, the, the person who's live, not just being the only educator in the room, but utilizing the audience to, to educate too. I definitely want to talk a little bit about in just a moment about how to engage with an audience that's there. But this idea of taking any minuscule topic within a much larger one allows you to actually create like, let's say, for example, I did email marketing, I could potentially do an hour and talk about how to do email marketing, but it would I would have the same struggles as you doing how to do live stream because there's so much to unpack. And it wouldn't really be helpful, maybe, you know, a nice overview. But then what if instead, I did a whole hour about increasing your open rates for your emails? That in and of itself can have four or five points that I can talk about and discuss with and show examples of. And then the next day I talk about how to write great subject lines. The next day I talk about how to read your analytics with your email service provider, right? I can can have a whole month worth of stuff related to just that one topic alone. And so I I absolutely love that. So let's say we go live, we have a topic, we share it out, we let people know ahead of time. Like, is that what you'd recommend, scheduling something ahead of time? Or do you recommend just kind of like, you know what, I have a spark right now. I wanna talk about open rates. I'm just gonna go live and talk about open rates right now.
0: I will never stop you from going live if you have that spark and you're just gonna be like, yeah, I need to talk about this, let's do it. Go for it. But in order to grow an audience, habits are key. You've got to train your audience. And, and people kind of laugh at that term, but it's really what it is. And there's no other way to say it. You are training your audience to show up, to take the actions. And when we talk about engagement, I'm going to say the same thing, <laughs> like, to take the actions that you want them to take, right? And so the habit and the calendar is really, really important. Back in the day, when I first started doing video, Way back in 2005, people would tell me that their morning habit was to wake up, grab a cup of coffee and watch my show. That's exactly what you want to create. That was their morning routine. And I'm not asking you to create a morning routine. It's a routine of some kind, right? So that same day, same time, every single week is massively important to create a community.
4: Yeah, that makes me think about the live streams that I watch now. I've been getting really involved in the Pokemon collectible community. Having started a channel. Yeah, I actually started a YouTube channel. It's We just crossed 36,000 subs, which is really crazy. But I'm very involved in that community now. And I'm also a consumer of content from other creators. And there's this one guy, his name's Sagar. And he goes live almost every night. And literally every day I get the notification because I'm, you know, bell subscribed. And it just becomes a part of my routine after the kids go down is I have him on in the background or I'm engaged and I'm watching, and it's just like now I'm at a point where if he skips a day, I'm like, "Oh man, I'm like I feel like something's missing here it's kind of it's kind of crazy how that habit starts to form that behavior and And then when he comes back alive again, it's like, "Oh man, like thank you, and you know we're all excited." <laughs>
0: And to go a little deeper on this, you know, it's a mental thing. You need to understand what you're asking your audience to do. You want viewers, yet you're not willing to be committed to showing up at the same day, same time every week.
4: Feels kind of selfish.
0: (laughs) Very selfish, right? It's like, okay, give to me by showing up on my stream, but you're not giving to them. So when you think about that from, from that perspective, it really kind of shifts the way you think about creating that habit, I think.
4: What are some additional items, if any, before we get to engagement to get more people to watch, right? I think that by showing up and being consistent, people will eventually, especially because platforms can help you out, like algorithms and stuff. But hopefully you're providing good content, connecting with people. They also share it. Maybe you have an email list or other things, but what, what are some additional ways that we can get more people to show up live when we are live?
0: one of the most important things is depending on the platform that you're going live to you've got to focus on the titles the descriptions like if you're on youtube the thumbnail the titles uh, the keyword research massively important even for live and a little you know thing here is that you can actually show up on youtube in the search at the top of the search while you are live, but you need to be saying the words. You need to be saying the keywords that are in your title and your description because they're listening to what you're saying as well as seeing what you're putting. That's important uh, to rise to the top when it when it comes to live on YouTube, Facebook, same thing. Yet titles, interestingly enough, people put too much attention into the title on Facebook while live, it's important on the replay, but during the notification process of Facebook, the description is where it's at. And you need to be intriguing because when you look at your notifications, it says going live and it's actually putting in the notification system, the description and the title is gets missed little trick there. Um, (laughs) if you focus on enticement, I took a picture of two of my students and Stu McLaren's live notifications coming in my Facebook alerts right back to back. And I it took this and I meant to share it with my students. I'm going to have to do this right after this. It was very obvious that Stu, I'm clicking on that notification because the description was enticing. And the other two descriptions got really lost. Like in this stream, we will what? We will what? Like, I don't You want to make sure that you're really punchy and encouraging people to have that must-click attitude.
4: Okay. So they click, they're coming in, they're seeing you. How do we get them to stay? How do we get them to know they're in the right spot?
0: Well, you lock the doors. (laughs) I wish. I wish there was a functionality for that. You cannot leave. It's really in key that you understand that in order for people to, you know, stay, they have to be engaged. They have to see something that they must stay for. Otherwise, you're very likely to lose them to a phone call, to another stream, to a notification, et cetera, et cetera. In order to get engagement, you must be engaging. And you have to actually engage with your audience. You can't be Paying attention to nothing. You can't be waiting for viewers to show up because when one viewer shows up and they see you waiting and not doing anything, they're leaving, right?
4: So you can have to earn it, right? You gotta earn that
0: engagement. You gotta earn it. Yeah, absolutely. And in order for you to be engaging, you've got to tap into your uniquely you magic. That is the key, is being I hate when people say like just be you cuz nobody knows like how to actually do that right? <laughs> what does that mean? Um so instead of thinking about it that way it's tapping into your true vulnerable self. That doesn't mean you got to cry, but there's so much fake authenticity that happens in the world that you've got to break free from that. And what happens with you on camera in terms of this process of getting them to stick is you think that people are there to judge you and you're afraid that you're going to screw something up. I screw phrases up all the time. I have so many flaws that are strengths to my audience. I combine sentences <laughs> constantly. Uh, and my, my brain is moving too fast for my, for my mouth sometimes. And so like I'll combine popular phrases and screw them up all the time. And so my audience, I see that as a flaw. I, my audience sees that as a fun thing to make fun of me, right? They're not judging me. It's just funny when it happens. I don't get pop culture references at all because I didn't grow up with a TV or pop culture of any kind in, allowed in my life. So I don't know anything about the 80s, even though I'm an 80s girl. That is hilarious to my audience, though it's very embarrassing to me until I learned to tap into it. And now I say every time somebody obviously does a pop culture reference cuz i kind of maybe understand that it's a pop culture reference i'm like is that a pop culture reference and then they'll make fun of me and like we'll play a guessing game or i will be like star wars i got it <laughs> i earned 500 points or whatever i'll award myself points for getting a pop culture reference right so this is what i call audience triggers And when you learn to tap into your uniquely you magic that creates audience triggers and creates a universe, spelled Y-O-U, universe, (laughs) then you are creating this environment that is a a stick or a bail scenario. And when people are not going to, people are going to bail who are like This girl's crazy. Like, I don't like her at all. I don't like her laugh, which I get told all the time. I don't like the way she smiles, which I get told all the time. Like, people are going to hate me, and we want them out, right? We want them out of this world. So then you're left with the people who are going to stick. If you can tap into just releasing your hidden awesome and, and just putting that out there That's what's going to get people to not only click, but to stick and watch and then come back again and again and again. So it's about the flow, which we should talk about as well. You do need to have a flow for your, for your content, but that's the core. Your, your content can be amazing, but dry is, I won't say, but like, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like it can be super dry and that's, they're not going to pick up on the content.
4: So would you say you have to somewhat be a little entertaining or bring some sort of entertainment value in addition to the content that you're teaching?
0: Not in the way you think. When you say that, people think they have to be somebody they're not.
4: We have to dance, right? Oh, TikTok, I have to dance, right?
0: Yeah, I made you dance because <laughs> I like to dance, right?
4: You did make me dance. and <laughs> I don't know if you knew I did too, but that worked out that day. That We're, we're talking about a live stream that Lurie invited me on while the countdown timer was going in the beginning, uh, we like danced and it was kind of fun. And then people made fun of it and we embraced that and we, we enjoyed it. You know, embracing your weird is another thing I like to say that kind of wraps this all up too. But what are you worried about when people hear the word entertaining?
0: Yeah. So when people hear that, they think, well, they naturally think, well, I'm just a boring person. I used to think that about myself as well. I still think I'm pretty boring. (laughs) And so we all think we're boring. And so what I don't want you to hear is I have to be entertaining when I'm a boring person. Oh, gosh, this isn't for me. You need to be entertaining in the way you are entertaining to the people who love you. And the world sees you very, very differently than you see yourself. The only reason I'm able to show up on camera and dance and be weird and embrace, what did you say? Embrace the weird then, you know, is because I actually understand that all of the things that are going through my brain aren't actually reality for other people and they see me in a very different light because we are our own worst enemy, quote unquote, right? When you can start to think about, okay, what is, when I'm hanging out with my friends and my family, if your family likes you, (laughs) then what are those things about you that they like? Is it that you have a dry sense of humor, like Renee Ritchie on YouTube? Is it that you are super geeky? What is it? You don't have to be the talk of the town. You don't have to be that loud person in the room to perform well and get people to stick into your content. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you tap into those unique personality traits that you're scared to put out there.
4: That's so important, not just in live streaming, but just in business in general.
0: Yeah. Totally.
4: That's huge. Or else like if there was nothing unique or different or standout-ish from you, then why in the world would you stand out? There, You have to have something. There's gotta be something. And it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have, to. you know, I know a lot of people in the business space, are like, oh, well, I don't have a sob story that can really, emotionally connect with people well don't make one up but what is it interesting about you and the way you do things oh well, i'm just super ocd okay let's like embrace that and make everything you do like have to be perfect now it doesn't have to be perfect but like let's make that your thing so that when something is not perfect it like upsets you and you let people know about that. And it's just, just who you are.
0: I can't deal. The, the stuff is not right. Yes. Like you just, you, you blow that up, right? You blow that up and it becomes a thing. <laughs> yes.
4: How else, when we're, when we see a live chat, let's see, we got some people in there, they're talking. What are some different cool, fun little strategies that we have for keeping everybody excited, having fun and, and engaged?
0: A very easy one is to well, a few different things. One, to get people to actually engage, meaning they comment, right? There's, there's engagement and there's engagement. There's, there's comments and then there's engagement. You want people to stop lurking and start commenting first because you need that easy win. And that's, that comes in the form of a very simple answer. Yes, no, Close ended questions, choice A, B, or C. And you can ask those in a variety of different ways. Do you like, (laughs) I asked Marquez Brownlee this the other day. (laughs) Do you like bacon, eggs, or cookies? Like, which one of those three are you going to choose? Right. And then the audience chimed in as well. And so you ask those things where they have to make a choice. Food, pets always works. Even something as simple as, are you new around here? Type new in the comments. Or are you excited about this topic? Are you excited about learning to X, Y, Z? Give me a big yes in the comments. Nobody ever answers no because they don't want to be that person.
4: <laughs> right? yeah. But then it shows people who are more quiet that everybody's excited and they get excited too, right? There's like that cool sort of group thinks sort of situation happening.
0: Absolutely. And then you can go deeper with them after you get them to comment and then you can, can get full engagement by actually getting deeper. But that's where it starts is in those really easy kind of fun engagement tricks.
4: Yeah, I love that. And and those are things that you can't really do on any other platform. I mean, you have to do it live in order to get that immediate response. And it's so easy to watch a live now on YouTube or Twitch or whatever, where people can comment really easily. And I love those little games that you could play. Like I love to have people share if I'm again, live streaming in front of my Pokemon audience, I'm like, okay, we need some luck on the next pack. Hit me up with fire in the chat. And it's just like, like fire emojis everywhere, right? And everybody gets excited. And then I have music to sort of build it up. And that's kind of fun. Sometimes I say, okay, if you are this kind of person, type in a one. If you're this kind of person, type in a two. Super easy. Just literally type in a one or two. The yes, no's always work really well on a scale of one to 10, right? And then what I like to do sort of to go one step further with that is like start, naming people and their answers. All right, so Jim said four, you know, Tony said 10. Tony, wow, that's awesome. What What are you doing today to, to say 10? That's that's incredible, you know, and just kind of, it takes practice though. That's the biggest thing that I've learned is it takes practice. If you watch the first stream that I did in the income stream, the 365 days, and you compare it to my later ones, it's literally night and day. It's just unreal how much you improve just by doing something. But there is that barrier So I really, really appreciate all these tips and and the help to get started. You know, we didn't even get into equipment and stuff and I didn't want to because that's often where people go first. I mean, there is equipment at all different budgets to go live. You might even be able to go live with the tools you have now, but it's this stuff that we're talking about today. What would be one final biggest tip that you have for everybody who's about to go live or they've gone live and they want to do it right? Let's give them some encouragement before we finish up today.
0: Can I do two things?
4: Yeah, Over deliver. This is what you do always.
0: (laughs) Uh, Number one, understand, you know, on the back of the engagement conversation, understand that you do not need to stick to your content and content alone. People want to know you as a human being, bringing in the things that are your hobbies, your pets, your kids, your significant other conversations around other aspects of your life outside of the content itself that's where you're going to really get engagement. Make sure that you don't get siloed in your brain about that. And then when it comes to the content delivery, we just didn't mention the show flow that I I think is so important. It's really important that you understand that the flow of your content is going to kind of move people through the content without you worrying so much about, I forget what I'm going to say, or what if I get off track or going down those squirrel holes? Squirrels are totally fine, as long as you keep coming back, as long as they're relevant or funny or entertaining of some kind, right? Uh, But what you want to do is open up with a teaser or a hook, something that is for the replay viewer, not so much the live viewer. And you want to tell people what they're watching. It's the same for video, by the way but we'll have some live live changes here. And then you're going to do your quick intro of yourself, ask a question to get people talking, then go into the topic, right? Just dive right in. And you're thinking about the replay viewer. Before you go live, you're going to segment out your content into like three to five bullet points so that you have segments to tackle. And then in between each segment, you're going to just focus on the delivery of the value. Then you break for engagement, answer any questions, call people's names out, go into segment number two, break for engagement, segment three, break for engagement, call to action, close it out. That's the basic show flow for your live streams make sure that you're not like over-engaging because sometimes you can really over-engage and never deliver on any value because you're just so nervous. Doing that really helps people get started. And then you can advance into a more different show flows that allow you to connect with your community more, or that allow you to have an intentional broadcast for replay. Uh, So there are different intentions that you can kind of go through with your content, but That show flow that I just laid out, that's going to help you get started and stay focused while also being able to engage.
4: So good. Thank you for bringing that around, Luria. Uh, That was a great way to finish off. And I want people to watch you live because you do it so well. You keep it engaging. You practice what you preach. Where can people go to catch you live? And I know you have a lot more information to share. Where should people go to grab that information or tools or anything else you have?
0: Sure. So I am live on YouTube and Facebook at Live Streaming Pros. And just check the about section for the schedule. But I would love, love, love to see you in a live show. And not be a lurker, get your dancing shoes on for the countdown timer and get your hands ready to comment. And I would love to see you there. And then if you want to download a live video checklist that will make sure that you actually don't screw anything up before you go live, then you can find that at live streaming pros.com slash checklist. And that'll get you started down the path of the tech. If that's something that you're interested in as well.
4: That's so perfect. Thank you so much. We'll put all the links in the show notes for you. And I encourage everybody to go check you out more because uh, you've helped me out so much and you've helped all of us out already today so much. So. I,
0: I told you this at the beginning of everything. You are one of the best live streamers I have ever seen because at the end of the day, you care about your audience. And that's all it takes to be a great live streamer is that you care about people. And so Pat, you're just such a great person to model. So thank you for having me.
4: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Take care. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Loria Pacucci Again, you can find her at LivestreamingPros dot com, find her on YouTube. You can follow her show and just dance around and have a lot of fun. She's just such an awesome person. Again, live streaming pros on YouTube. And of course that amazing checklist, which you can find at live com slash checklist to help you get started all the tech stuff everything you need to know so you can do the best job and remember your first time it's always going to be the worst time right you got to be a disaster before you become the master and I haven't mastered live streaming yet but I've gotten so much better simply because I said you know what the fear that I have is not as great as the help I know I could offer others so let me just put myself out there find the right people and attract the right people and that's exactly what happened And if that happens to be you because you've caught me live before I cannot thank you enough and I'm encouraged to continue to go live in the future everywhere as much as possible. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much, Luria, for all of your wisdom today and hope that you subscribe if you haven't already because we have a lot of great episodes coming your way to help you with growing your online business, growing your audience, helping you reach more people so you can teach and also generate an income as a result and as a byproduct of the service that you offer. Keep it up and I'll see you in the next episode. Cheers, peace out, and as always, Team Fluent for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session.